Hello everyone, this is Jack with the Book Club from Hell, and before we start this episode, I would like to make a brief announcement. We have chased meaning away, in its place grows the tower, always expanding and leaving blissfully fulfilled employees in its wake. I am a doctor who specialises in souls, a potent advertising slogan leaves ripples in the world of the spirit. Love is remembered, maybe S was responsible for everything, but who else do I have? Blending Franz Kafka, Mikhail Bulgakov, Jacques Ellul, and Stalker, Shadow of Chernobyl, Tower is a search for meaning in a world no longer organised for humans. So goes the blurb for my upcoming novel, Tower, to be released in November 2023 and available on my website, www.jackbc.me, that is, www.jackbc.me. Thank you. Jack, Levi, the book club from hell. Hello everyone, this is Jack with the book club from hell, the spear tip of the bureaucracy maximalist agitation front. Murray Rothbard was an anarcho-capitalist, born in New York in 1926. Embracing the praxeology of Ludwig von Mises, Rothbard was an adherent of the Austrian School of Economics and considered fractional reserve banking to be fraud, opposed the Federal Reserve, opposed any sort of intervention in the affairs of other countries, deemed taxation theft, considered Atlas Shrugged to be, quote, an infinite treasure house, fell out with Ayn Rand and satirised her and her followers in an essay called The Sociology of the Ayn Rand Cult, accused the state of being a parasite and a predator, and much more. The subject of today's episode is Anatomy of the State, first published in 1974. It is a shorter work of Rothbard's, unlike his much longer and denser theoretical texts. It, by examining the nature of the state, is an introduction to anarcho-capitalist thought. For a very brief bit of housekeeping, if you like what we're doing with the podcast, please recommend it to someone you know, or go and rate us five stars on Spotify or wherever you listen to it. That'd be really helpful. So, if you're ready to stop paying tax for enlightened reasons, then listen on. Enjoy. I'll lay my cards on the table for this. I, I viscerally agree with a lot of what Rothbard says in this <laughs> essay or a paper or a pamphlet. It's really short, like 60 pages or something. I'm not saying this is a considered position. I just really enjoy it when he starts talking about the state being this organised system of theft. Yeah, I'm, uh, <laughs> as, as any long-time listeners of the show will be aware, I have... Uh, very strong leanings <laughs> <laughs> towards uh, libertarian, anarchistic, capitalistic <laughs> points of view. So reading anything by Rothbard um, will basically just be like uh, masturbatory <laughs> for, for Levi. Well, this was good for me to read because it's the sort of thing where I I instinctively will just agree with many of the things he's saying and then I have to take a step back and think okay is this a, is this considered yeah. jack or are you, do you just like this in an animal way and a lot of the time i like it in an animal way because that experiences like for example we went trekking through nepal last year and especially high up in the mountains you see what it's like to live with with a minimal state like yeah notionally notionally <laughs> some of these villages of like 30 people are administered to by the nepalese government but they're also at like four and a half thousand meters with 
one track going in and out of them, which regularly just gets taken out by a landslide. So you also get a feeling of what it's like to live with much less of a state. And there are some real benefits of having a state. There's some real conveniences <laughs> that, that should be brought up, particularly against me when I start uh, getting a bit too masturbatory <laughs> with how much I like Rothbard. And I should also note that I, the, I, I've definitely read it at least once, maybe twice before, and I've read quite a lot of Rothbard stuff. So I was coming into this extremely friendly. <laughs> Like when Jack said, yeah, I'd never read anything by Rothbard before, so it'll be good to have your perspective on this. Yeah, like I really like Rothbard. Basically, I really like von Mises <laughs> and I really like Rothbard and I really like Hayek. So, <laughs> <laughs> so and uh, I've started reading Hans Hermann Hopp, which is like um, Rothbard's sort of star pupil and I really like Hopper as well. So <laughs> which which book of his? Uh, he has one called... Is Democracy uh, the God That Failed that you're reading? No, no. That's the one that I want to save for the book club. Because I was about to say that would be perfect book club from Hell Fodder. No, the one that I'm reading is a sociological comparison between capitalism and mm-hmm. socialism. Mm-hmm. And it's really good. So I've got the double whammy. I'm reading von Mises and Hopper at the same time. So book so book A from Hop from Hopper is uh, like an analysis of socialism. Uh, what's it called? I can't remember what it's called. And von Mises' book B is also called socialism. So they're both like just Austrian econ- economists analyzing Marx, socialism, capitalism. So the other book that uh, I'm reading by von Mises is. Uh, a lecture series that he gave um, about Karl Marx and Karl Marx's work. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I really like like these bosses. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Too friendly. So I had to come in with this a little bit. I After finishing reading this one this time around, Anatomy of the State, I had to think through, okay, like, but what are some criticisms of <laughs> of, of, of my perspective on this? I actually think that in a way like this book might be harder for us to review for this um, book club because we probably intuitively agree. Whereas like it's easier to do books that we dis- disagree with and then can just make fun of. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm going to make an effort this time to be critical, to, to sort of be harder on this than I would be normally because I am aware of the fact that I'd, I, I just intuitively agree with a lot of it in a sort of a pre-rational sense. <laughs> so we should um, quickly say who mm. Rothbard was and what problem he's trying to solve here. So maybe I'll say just quickly yeah, you'll know who Rothbard a lot more than was uh, for anybody. Yeah, so essentially he was uh, sort of the intellectual uh, spearhead of the libertarian movement in the US. Uh, he was, uh, I believe, a student of... Uh, von Mises and a contemporary of von Mises. So for people who don't know who von Mises is, uh, von Mises was uh, one of the most important, if not the most important, um, economist from the Austrian School of Economics, who if you know about Bitcoin, you you would have heard that term used a lot (laughs) if you've looked into Bitcoin. Basically like Bitcoin, hard money, libertarians, gold standard, all that sort of stuff, like all very heavily influenced by von Mises and von Mises trained, I believe Rothbard might've done his thesis or something under von Mises. So don't quote me on that, but 
something to that effect. Anyways, he was uh, also a contemporary of <laughs> of Ayn Rand. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, they knew each other. They knew each other, and they yeah, argued they were good specifically friends. over the definition of anarchy. Yeah, like, that was a real point yeah, of contention. So, like she, she was very heavily influenced by by Rothbard when she started writing nonfiction. Did they have sex? Probably because no. <laughs> she had her she had her like male concubine, her little harem of like of like intellectual toe suckers. So potentially Rothbard was one of them. <laughs> Bunch of servile weasels will debase themselves in any way just to get a lick of her big toe. Mm, yum. Yeah, smokes so a cigarette and talks about the, the gold standard or something like that. <laughs> like puts the cigarette out on their nipples or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you little bitch. I don't know, for some reason she's got an Austrian accent or something. My, they just that's my terrible Ayn Rand pleasure when she steps on them. <laughs> Starts talking about self-organizing society. <laughs> anyway, I'm not claiming that Rothbard and Ayn Rand had sex. <laughs> No, no, no. So Rothbard is a really important uh, economist. He also wrote one book in particular that's important to note, which is called uh, called Man, Economy, and State, I think, um, which was kind of like – so von Mises had this book called Human Action, which is an amazing book, very long but really worth reading. And then Rothbard basically kind of created like um, Human Action 2.0, almost like kind of like improved on a few things that Mises said, like added a bit of his own stuff, criticisms of the state and all this sort of stuff. Um, and that's his major, that's his magnum opus, Man, Economy and State. And then he wrote a bunch of other really interesting articles. Um, one is The Anatomy of the State. Another one that I really like that we might read another time if we if we want to is one where he criticizes, he's just like goes to town on government-funded science. <laughs> <laughs> Which I also That'd really be pretty like. fun, actually. That'd be a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, what, Jack, do you want to talk about what problem he's trying to solve with uh, anatomy of the state? Yeah, so at least in my mind, the problem he was trying to solve in the anatomy or in this, this work, anatomy of the state, is working against the, the increasing belief. So this was published in 1974. The increasing belief among most people in Western countries that states are natural and inevitable, and something even beyond that, not even where people would consider them to be natural or inevitable, but that people wouldn't even consider states to be, to be almost this optional thing. It's a state always is. It's in the same way that gravity exists. Necessary. You just have a state. It's just there all the time. Whereas yeah. states, particularly in the modern conception of the nation state, are quite recent. They've been around for a few hundred years. It's, I've heard a lot of people say it was really the French Revolution that ushered in the age of the nation state, so 1789. Mm. I don't really, I don't know enough about the history to definitively say whether that is or isn't the case. But I've I've heard that enough to to parrot it to sound like I'm smarter than I am. So Rothbard <laughs> really was aiming to try to dispel that notion of the inevitability of a nation state. But also, sorry, just to interject, uh, not like even going back before the nation state because he mentions like monarchies and stuff. Oh, yeah, I guess so government. Are, obviously, 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess he talked, well, we'll get into it, but he, he talks about what the state is. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, sorry, you were saying, Jack? Yeah, I agree with what you've just said, and that also brings up something really interesting that sets Rothbard apart from, for example, you mentioned Hayek earlier, so it sets him apart from some contemporaries like Hayek, where Rothbard is an anarchist. He was anarcho-capitalist. Shout out to Trent from the Discord. <laughs> in that, so Hayek, for example, in The Constitution of Liberty, which is one of his better-known works on governance, talks about the need to create a society of laws, a society governed by laws which sit above the people who enact them. And implicit in that formulation is that you have a state, you have some sort of apparatus to formulate and then enforce these laws. Whereas Rothbard just says, no, we don't want it. It's always bad, at least in this work, The Anatomy of the State, which might be or probably is simplified to reach a broader audience. But at least in this, he seems to be saying, no, it's all bad. It's always predatory. It's always a, a mechanism by which people can politically steal from those who produce economically. And so we need to work out ways to exist without it. Yeah. Would you say that's a fair characterization of yeah. Rothbard as being properly anarchist? Yeah. And so there's this interesting historical and I guess kind of like intellectual divide that occurred. And <clears throat> it kind of corresponds to like European versus American or US. And it's it's an interesting divide between people who might call themselves like classical liberals. And so you might look at like Hayek mm. von Mises. Who called himself an old Whig, I think. Not even a classical yeah. liberal, and 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 uh, and Popper, who all the, all three of those philosophers I really like, <clears throat> and then you've got like the Rothbard brand of libertarianism that goes into like anarcho capitalism, which is like um, Hans Hermann Hopper is just full blown anarcho capitalist, um, and and another economist I like, Cypher Dynamos, who's like big in the Bitcoin community, he's like anarcho capitalist, and. Um, and if for me personally, I I find this really interesting because I basically like all of those people I just said, but there's this big divide or there's this kind of cr one of the kind of dividing issues, which I haven't made up my mind on yet, but I find it an interesting thing to talk about is like, okay, well, democracy was pretty good, but do we really need democracy? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And is there some like sort of like post-democratic thing? Like, can we have non-state institutions of law, for example, like you know, arbitration courts that are purely contractually entered into rather than like having a state monopoly on like courts and law and order and that sort of stuff. Very interesting conversations. And Rothbard would be saying like, no, we can have voluntary non-state courts, police, defense, and so forth. Like he's basically like, no, we need to get rid of that institution. And he, this book is kind of like him explaining some of, of his perspective on that. Yeah. Even you bringing up earlier non-government maintained courts, so courts that exist purely on contracts between individuals, demonstrates why I might not be the right person to be conveying to people the contents of anatomy of the state, given that, again, without really having considered what those courts would look like, I just immediately thought, yeah, fuck yeah, fuck yeah, I really like that. <laughs> Before catching myself and thinking... Uh, there are probably downsides <laughs> to this. <laughs> I'm yeah, so there are going to be downsides to this. 
I was so we'll, we can jump into the book in a tick, but I just will note that I I was really critical of this point of view because as people know who listen to this podcast, like I really like Karl Popper, and Karl Popper was just like big on democracy. It's like democracy is super important, like needs to be defended, all this sort of stuff with the open society, and I really like that. I was like, yeah, great, democracy is awesome, and then. I was kind of really critical of the anarcho-capitalist stuff. I was like, yeah, but like, you know, it seems like we need law and order, right? Like, I mean, as much as I love freedom, it seems like there's this function that needs to be fulfilled. And Saifedean Amus pointed out this really interesting, um, he made this really interesting historical note in his latest book, The Principles of Economics. He's like, actually, like, if you look at the, uh, the court system, the common law system that evolved in the UK, and I have to go and fact check this like historically, but like before the Magna Carta and the consolidation into like single common law and the parliamentary system, there was actually like local courts and law. So this was all like a lot of the organic evolutionary, um, I guess like accretion of institutional knowledge that was occurring in the UK in, in the British Isles prior to the consolidation under like a single government was happening through these like regional courts in the first place. Mm. I was like, oh man, I had like, actually, if you put it like that, and then he was proposing like, you know, like voluntary. So like, if you work for an employer, you like enter into a contract and you elect like which court system you're going to use to arbitrate any disagreements and that sort of stuff. He made this really interesting point. It's like, actually, there's more scope for competition and more scope for like, error correction and like if one court's doing poor like doing a bad job then there'll be competition between courts to be fair and all this sort of stuff i'm like i don't know how realistic that is except it's a very different way of thinking about like the role of error correction in like an open market for law and order well when you say realistic in terms of international commercial law that is to a large extent how it does operate so corporations will choose which jurisdiction they'll make agreements together in so for example in Right. London is, this is a huge um, source of business in London specifically. So the, mm. the number of companies that will effectively use London's courts is so much higher than the number of companies operating in London. So uh, right. international yes. commerce already does do that to quite a large extent. Huh. I didn't know that. Yeah, oh, well, there you go. So it's super interesting, and because on the basis like, of hearing think- that, I am now an anarcho-capitalist. <laughs> <laughs> so my my thing that I you know like I know it probably comes across as like extremely uh, ideological, and I guess I, I everybody's ideological, I suppose, to some degree. But the thing, the the sort of thing that I try to hone in, in, in on is is error correction. Like the thing that stands out to me about Popper's epistemology and like that, what David Deutsch and stuff talk about is the importance of error correction. So um, to me, when Popper basically explains the purpose of democracy as being like a way to improve error correction in our governance, I was like, wow, that's a really compelling argument. But I never thought like, oh, yeah, but like also when it comes to say like error correction within the, you know, uh, the organization of the production process, actually having an open market of like competitive firms and consumer sovereignty and all that sort of stuff essentially allows the market to do um, error correction. Whereas if you monopolize that through a state, it means that you don't have that error correction mechanism. So I was like, oh, actually, so what they're trying to do is introduce this comp- competitive error correction into like the actual process of evolving 
the laws and like uh, the police systems and all that sort of stuff. I found it really interesting. Mm-hmm. Still not decided, but I found it interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So should we explain the structure of the book? Yeah. Is Before that, is there anything else you want to add in terms of how you see Rothbard's project with Anatomy of the State? So essentially like Rothbard was like, this is one of many books where he's basically just going after the state. And importantly, when he's going after the state, he's he's not just limiting it to like so von Mises and Hayek and Popper and probably some other philosophers, when they went after this this issue of the state, they really aimed it at <clears throat> socialism in particular and various forms of socialism and authoritarianism and Marxism and fascism and so forth. But it's really only but they, they sort of like took democracy as a given. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, but we're trying to get rid of these authoritarian forms of authoritarian forms of government, and like because we want democracy. And there's even a book called uh, the called the Last Night of Liberalism about um, von Mises, which is a biography of von Mises. And uh, whereas, like the interesting thing about the American libertarians is, I said, no, fuck democracy as well. <laughs> 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 They're like, no, we need it. Like it's completely illegitimate. It's completely like. Um, it's coercive. The state itself is illegitimate. Like we need to come up with like a post. We need to go beyond democracy. Like sure, democracy is better than socialism, but actually just like Hayek said, the rope to serfdom is working exponentially harder for a currency growing exponentially weaker. No, sorry, that's something that Michael Saylor said. But yeah, basically <laughs> rope to serfdom <laughs> is paved with good intentions and the bricks are laid by the parliament who are democratically elected mm-hmm. whereas like Rothbard and Hopper and stuff what I have found really interesting about what they're basically saying is like actually we've got an issue with democracy they weren't just happy with settling with criticisms of socialist states or authoritarian states yeah well I feel like from my from my limited knowledge of the the American ANCAPs is that it's it's not even specifically with democracy. They bring up democracy a lot because they existed within a a society which was democratically governed, which is probably why they focused on it. But it's specific it's with government as an administrative apparatus. And so for them it's not that relevant or it is relevant how you choose the members of that administration, but even if you're choosing them in you know, some optimal way, it's it's still something that they don't regard as legitimate, this administrative body yeah. ruling them. So the book has five parts or six parts, and we're just going to roughly follow the, uh, the structure of the book and the say some quotes. It's, not a, long qu- it's mm. not a long book. And the five parts are what is the state or what the state is not, what the state is, <clears throat> how the state preserves itself, um, how the state transcends its limits, what the state fears, how states relate to one another, and history as a race between state power and social power. Yeah. This was a really, really nicely set out short work and very easy to read. To what extent is the, co- is the contents of Anatomy of the State simplified as compared to Rothbard's other works? I think his other works, uh, well, in particular... Man, economy, and state is just extremely rigorous. Whereas this one is almost um, 
it's almost like a lecture or something. Like he, mm. you could you could see him being just uh, this, just being a one lecture summary, or like maybe two or three lectures summary of like his his point of view. Yeah, because a lot of it felt to me like a, admittedly a fairly long manifesto, but still a lot like a manifesto in that he's setting yeah. out what he believes. He's not going into too much detail on each individual point so that he can keep it short. That was my yeah, feeling, and- which is why I, I want to know whether this is is representative of, of the depth of his thinking or not. No. So man economy and state is really like really rigorous. So it's called, so von Mises called it praxeology, which is the uh, study of human action. So human action being uh, intentional, purposeful, uh, cognate behavior versus say like reflective mm-hmm. behavior. So mm-hmm. like if I... <clears throat> You know, like a reflex would be like, oh, you burn yourself. You're going to like withdraw your hand. That's not action. That's what he, not what he means mm-hmm. by human action. What he means by human action is like doing something with forethought. Okay, I'm going to go and uh, buy this fridge because my current fridge is broken and that's a problem I've got, mm-hmm. so I'm going to go and perform this action. So human action, praxeology being the study of human action, it's uh, there's a couple of important points to understand about it. The first point is that it's uh, it's an individualist methodology. So... You don't collectivize people. You don't like put people into these groups, arbitrary groups like race or state or like gender or whatever. You think about like each person has their own thoughts and their own plans for their life and the things that they're trying to get out of their life. And they've got to work within the constraints of like their resources, time, energy, goals, and so forth. And so you're studying human action and the economy through that perspective. Which I think is the correct methodological mm. approach to take to studying economics, which is why I'm a Bitcoiner. Um, <laughs> I guess I'll, we'll put a pin uh, in that point to, to maybe talk about after we've run through the the contents yeah. of this book. Because I guess one, maybe maybe a point against that would be wouldn't someone's group identity, like their sex, their gender, their race, nationality, etc., influence how they make particular decisions meaning that they need to be taken into account yes and that's fine that works within this framework yeah like so you're not analyzing it through the perspective of like say this class so like a really good example would be like mark spoke about class and class interests so you explain somebody's behavior because say they're a member of a particular class and they're basically just a conduit to express that class's interest Mm -hmm. through their behavior so that would be like a collectivist analysis so basically von Mises would say that's an invalid way to analyze that person's behavior you need to look at like what so that person might care about the fact that say they're the member member of a particular class or race or whatever but it's not like the primary actuator of like Mm -hmm. the analysis so it's it's an input yes but yeah okay um it's not the it's not the primary actor and so Von Me- so sorry, um, Rothbard's other works, he's got two types of work. He's got his historical work. Sorry, three types of work. He's got his historical works, like For a New Liberty is basically, and then he's got another book about like the history of economic thought. Then he's got his praxeological work, which is very like academically rigorous. And then he's got his stuff that's more like polemic. And this is one of his polemic the fun works. stuff. Yeah, the fun stuff. <laughs> so this work and the one where he he's like taking down state-funded science and stuff and there's another really good one that I like where he's like attacking state-funded military stuff. And um, <laughs> so, and then, so he's got these like fire brandy sort of like 
you know, old man shakes fist at sky sort of vibes in like a subset of his smaller works, which are much shorter and tend to not be as rigorous. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that bit of context. <laughs> Sorry. I only just realized how much I know about Rothbard. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's really good. I, I expect a lot of this Sorry. episode is me just going to be asking questions for my own interest about Rothbard and then hoping that the audience also finds it interesting. <laughs> I'm not a Rothbard scholar. I'm just very, I'm, I, I'm enthusiastic though. <laughs> Okay. So don't quote me on anything. So what the state is not is the first section. No, no, Jack, you missed the most important part to start off. <laughs> the leading, the introductory quote. <laughs> yeah, yeah, read it out, read it out. <laughs> okay, so the first, so instead of like quoting somebody else or like dedicating the book to somebody, <laughs> the first thing in like the, like before the table of contents, it's just, he's quoting himself. <laughs> 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 that's that's how much he backs himself. He's like, fuck yeah, this is awesome. Of course this man <laughs> says, knew Ayn Rand. <laughs> of course they got along. <laughs> he said, um, the greatest danger to the state is independent intellectual criticism. <laughs> Quote, Murray Rothbard. <laughs> he quotes himself, effectively appointing himself as the greatest threat to the state. <laughs> <laughs> the guy backed himself, man. <laughs> it's a very confident way to start a book, quoting yourself. Yeah. Look, even if you don't like Rothbard, you've got to give him points for confidence. <laughs> That's a really powerful confidence. <laughs> All right. What the state is not. So straight up. Well, after quoting himself, I should say. So, first he quotes himself (laughs) as the greatest threat to the state, and then he starts talking about what the state is not. So, what the institution that he is the greatest threat to is not. And he lists a few of these things that will be familiar to people listening today as to what the state is described as, as an institution of social service or an amiable, though often inefficient, organisation for achieving social ends, or a counterbalance to the private sector, or something identified as the same as society. And this this last point seems to be the one that he considers to be the most threatening, at least if the amount of time in this tract dedicated to it is anything to go by. And this belief that the state is the same as society is increased under democracy. And I've got, a, I've got a good quote about this. The useful collective term we has enabled an ideological camouflage to be thrown over the reality of political life. If we are the government, then anything a government does to an individual is not only just and untyrannical, but also voluntary on the part of the individual concerned. So all of these things these different ways that the state is sometimes described in society, Rothbard just says, no, they're all wrong. None of those things are yeah. right. It's not and a counterbalance to the private sector. It's not the apotheosis of society. It's not an institution of social service. It is not no. us. It's, well, well, we'll get into what it truly is. Yeah, and one, one of the interesting points that he makes is like, <clears throat> if you think it's us, if you think the state is us, then therefore conscription so he uses a bunch of examples, but I mm. found the conscription just doesn't make sense. Yeah. It's just like, okay, so you voluntarily 
uh, enslave yourself to go off to military <laughs> service and fight on the shores of some other country. But obviously, that's not in violation mm. of your own um, consent. Because but then it goes one step further do something to, to people evading conscription because that means that they have voluntarily enslaved themselves to go fight and then not obeyed what they have voluntarily done and then voluntarily allow someone else to arrest them and put them in prison for it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So this is this this follows very naturally from uh methodological individualism, which is like, okay, that only makes sense if you think of like the individual has their own goals and beliefs and so forth. And whether or not they want to fight on the shores of Gallipoli or whatever is an individual decision. And the state is the institution that is not them, clearly, because they're not <laughs> enslaving themselves. And uh, and it's just an institution of people who happen to have, well, we'll get on to what exactly it is. Mm. Um, so I broke this section down into the mistake that people make, which is largely the mistake is people think, oh, the government's us or the government's an institution of social service. As a historical note, there were a lot of justifications for different states throughout history. So uh, he sort of touches on this a little bit, but it's interesting to note that like further, the people like Hegel, who he was an intellectual who basically uh, started the German school of like basically state-based justification for state power. He started off with trying to justify like Frederick III's, I think, or Frederick Wilhelm III's like state power. And then... But throughout history, there's been lots of these like intellectuals. I think the Chinese uh, bureaucrat, like there was this big intellectual bureaucracy in like the Chinese dynasties that were basically just there to justify why the Chinese rulers should have power. Mm. Well, um, still exist. And yeah, yeah, yeah. and you <laughs> can see it in different. Anywhere. You can <laughs> you can definitely see that still happening in today in the West or like in in different parts of the world where like there's people who are essentially just try to come up with reasons why the state is legitimate. Another really interesting one is like Hobbes. Yeah, like yeah, Leviathan, yeah. You know, and there's lots of different reasons why, you know, with, is it spiritual reasons? Say like under Egypt, there's another really good book I like <laughs> called for, for Good and, and for Evil, The Consequences of Taxation on Human Civilization. It's <laughs> <laughs> really a fucking Levi good book. book. <laughs> Such a good book. Where he basically just starts from like ancient Egypt and just goes through all the ways that rulers have taxed and inflated and abused their citizens for like the last 4,000 years or something. And like even in ancient Egypt, there was like the priest class who just basically came up with propaganda saying like, oh, yeah, the pharaoh, like he's like the son of Ra or whatever and therefore he has the right to take whatever fucking measly wealth you have, you fucking Nile river drinking peasant piece of shit like <laughs> we're going to take all three copper coins that you've got and we're going to give it to this fucking guy over here because he's the son of Ra. so yeah this has been going on for a very long time and basically rothbard comes along and he says in the second part of this chapter which i view as like the first part is here's the mistake people are making the second part is the correction mm-hmm. can i just read out the correction yes yeah. i think he says better than i can say it um he says quote The state is that organization in society which attempts to maintain a monopoly of the use of force and violence in a given territorial area. In particular, 
It is the only organization in society that obtains its revenue not by voluntary contribution or payments for services rendered, but by coercion. While other individuals or institutions obtain their income by production of goods and services and by peaceful and voluntary sale of these goods and services to others, the state obtains its revenue by the use of compulsion, that is, by the use and the threat of the jailhouse and the bayonet. Having used force and violence to obtain its revenue, the state generally goes on to regulate and dictate the other actions of its individual subjects. And then all the other history is just details of like how people tried to justify that in different areas at different times. Mm. Yeah, so contained within that is a rebuttal of, for example, the claim that the state is a provider of social services. So I suppose to that Rothbard would say the fact that you're forced to pay for the social services means that it's it's not voluntary. The state is still taking money from you that you might not otherwise give and then using that to provide services that you don't necessarily want. Yeah. Also, like, it's it's sometimes unhelpful to sort of think about things too abstractly. Mm. And so, obviously, these things exist at an institutional level. And so, at the end of the day, you've got to talk about institutions. But sometimes it is helpful just to think at a very, like, concrete level what's happening and to like say like just use an allegory i always think like okay what's happening here we've got uh peter paul and pat and pat's hungry so paul's going to come along to peter and say to peter hey i'm going to take some shit off you to give to pat and whether or not you like it and i'm the good guy here and I'm going to override your voluntary like <clears throat> autonomy here and take from you and give to this other guy. Now, that doesn't negate whether or not like say Pat's hungry or whether or not like uh, Peter should or shouldn't give some food or whatever to Pat or like whatnot. But the only thing it highlights is that like in order for that social problem to be cured, People who advocate state interventions are saying, like, in order to, like, fix this social problem, say, in this case, Pat being hungry, it is necessary that somebody has the use of force in the situation and can coercively compel somebody else to do something, whether or not they want to do it. And so in those situations, you have to ask, even if there is a social problem that needs to be fixed, does the means justify the ends? And in fact, even if the, the ends are worthwhile pursuing, say, like, curing hunger or poverty or whatever, is, do we really want to live in a world or do we really think it's a part of the fabric of reality that in order to cure those social problems that we have to do it by violating people's life, liberty, property, body, health? I, I, I tend not to think so, but a lot of people come down on the side of like, no, in order to achieve certain things, we must have like this institution that does this thing by overriding people's consent. All right. How about, okay, so normally in episodes I am the chat GPT bot of whoever wrote the book trying to steel man them. Given that I tend, I just reflexively want to agree, I'm going to be sort of anti-Rothbard bot. Try my best yeah. to be anti-Rothbard bot. I'll give it a go as well. I'll try my best. What about, okay, so I haven't looked at the numbers. This could be something that people have quantitatively looked through. But if you have a society in a Hobbesian state of nature in which life is nasty, brutish, and short, you're going to be spending so much of your time, or just your resources in general, of which time is an important 
component on security and protecting your life, your property, those of your loved ones, that generating more is going to be really difficult. You've got that huge cost already. What if the state, by effectively raising the cost of petty violence to the point where it it makes much less sense and fewer people will do it, allows more people within that state who have given up their right to to act violently, either in a predatory way or in a retaliatory or a defensive way? What if that allows them to actually generate more? If there's an optimum level of coercion that that actually promotes generativity. Yeah, so so <laughs> should, I, should I actually respond to that or should we take it as like, should, do you want me to like say yes and let's riff on it? Because <laughs> I also have to like <laughs> fight, fight give, the urge to just agree with, with Rothbard. Give, 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 the, give the Levi slash Rothbard bot answer and then, and then we can talk about an anti-Rothbard okay. bot. Okay, because I, I think that's, a, that's actually a really interesting I wasn't expecting you to go there. I thought you were going to go like market failures or something. Um, but that's an interesting way to put it. Um, like, is there an optimum level of coercion? The, the thing is, like, in order to have that institution doing those things, it has to violate people's property. Mm-hmm. And property includes, like, their body. So, like, if uh, that could mean, like, direct slavery or could mean just, like, excessive taxation or whatever. Um, <clears throat> so... The primary issue here is that you don't see the damage that you've caused by taking those resources away from those people who would have done something else with those resources. And in particular, one of the things that people do is they purchase security or they invest in things for their security and they engage in voluntary exchange with one another in order to provide or purchase security services. And this is one of the most interesting points that like I have been grappling with recently is that like an economic good. So, okay, quickly, an economic good is just like a a good that's scarce or like something that's scarce. um, And therefore you have to make marginal decisions about it. As in you never ever want to eat all the bananas in the world. You only want to eat like the next marginal unit of bananas, like one or two Mm -hmm, bananas. mm -hmm. You never think about like, oh, I should I, eat bananas because this is the total cost of the entire volume of market supply of bananas. No, that's not how people think. Well, <clears throat> when we're talking about security, for example, as that's the one that you're using, uh, it's not the case that security is like exempt from this law of the economy. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Security is provided on a marginal basis. So uh, like <clears throat> say, say take a nightclub, for example. A nightclub will figure out, okay, we want this many bounces, but we don't want any more, but we don't want any less. So we want five bounces on Saturday nights, but on uh, Sunday mornings, we want two bounces. Okay. Like, it's not like they have to consider, oh, we want the maximum amount of security at all times, just uniformly across. Like, that's not the decision they're making because Mm. it costs energy, resources, money, organizational capacity to have more or less security. And so it's a marginal, it's an economic, it's an, it's an economic good. You have to make marginal decisions. So when the state comes in and says, we're going to provide, say, policing, or we're going to provide security services, or we're going to provide the military, or we're going to provide, say, law and order and courts, they're actually uh, coming in and they're, they're, they're trying to apply political reasoning, 
which is non-economic, like they're trying to say, we're going to provide some uniform level of security to everybody, ignoring the fact that it's an, it's a, it's an economic good. And that the actual reality is you do get marginal returns on say policing. And there are different unit, like there are, sorry, there are different regions within a city that have more or less quality of policing from, from the state. And those marginal decisions are being made, but it's being made through an institution. At this point, we ran into a few technical difficulties and restarted recording. I don't know if I'm doing like justice to like the thinking on. No, I was, that was really good. Can, can you I'm keep probably fucking up like yeah like, <laughs> yeah keep going because that's uh, this is really good yeah any anyway, I can try to keep going so I was asking if there's if there's what an, was the crux of what was the crux of the criticism? yeah an optimal yeah. level of coercion the crux where, of the criticism was yeah where economic some output or just generativity that like so people being able to crime. use their their property maximally well in you just some arbitrary units. Of, of utility using it maximally well given that they no longer have to worry about security i i guess rothbard would reply it's they have to worry about security from the state because the state's so much more dangerous than anyone else they'll meet yeah and that's not like a non-trivial mm-hmm, mm-hmm. concern like there's you've heard of eminent domain right like depending on you know which state you're in or whatever um like the government can literally just seize your property, like your land, can take your land off you. And maybe they have to give you a certain amount of recompense. Maybe they get mm-hmm. valued or whatever. It's like, okay, but they're violating your property. It's like, so can, like, what sort of petty cr- criminal can literally come along and take, take your fucking house out from underneath you? <laughs> you can only do that if you have a state. But I guess to that, someone who would want a state would say, maybe not just one person, but if, for example, 20 people got together and were armed and organized and decided to take your stuff they could yeah so the the reply to that is that it being security sorry security Mm -hmm. being Mm -hmm. a an economic good means that there's a market for it and there already is a market for private contractors in security services and arms and and so forth and even like arbitration court like private courts will provide contract and arbitration Mm. services so it is a market good there or this isn't like some hypothetical thing that there is a market for it and the price is set on the open market for say private security force in fact actually cypher dean made a really good point he's like there's more there's more private security forces in the world like there's more sorry there's more people employed as in the private security um sector Mm. than there Mm. are state base police in the world. And so there's already an, even given that there is a certain section of society that is being heavily subsidized, the police, to provide, apparently provide some level of uniform protection to everybody. Uh, mm-hmm. Even despite that, private businesses, say a bank, say like a bank, like actually a bank's a really good example. Like banks have their own security. <laughs> like they, mm-hmm. don't, they don't fuck around. You know, like uh, club Clubs have their own security. They don't. They don't mess around. They're not going to take like the police as like 
So, man, even when I was in Hobart, like I lived across the road from a butcher. So good. <laughs> Living across the road. Look, hey, piece of advice. If you can live across the road from a butcher, fantastic. Fresh meat whenever you want. <laughs> they had their own private security, a butcher. <laughs> uh, they Even they were saying through their action that their that the marginal amount of security they were being provided for protection of their property by the Hobart police was not sufficient and they were willing to pay above and beyond their tax burden mm. even more to a private security firm to provide extra security services to them. And they're just a butcher. Now, another criticism of Rothbard could be like, well, what about people mm-hmm, who mm-hmm. say like, quote unquote, can't, afford so you're providing like some at least some minimal level of like say like whatever the social services whether it's police or like welfare or health or whatever like you're providing some minimum floor that would be like another thing i guess you were saying that right with the minimal level of coercion that was i was i was specifically talking about security in that case because the hobbesian argument for a state i find one of the more compelling ones that there's always going to be a biggest kid in the schoolyard. And instead of having him constantly fighting with others, it might be better just to let him rule in as minimally invasive a way as possible. So a a more direct... So I'll take you one step further, actually, on that. So I already refuted it on, like, a weaker refutation, which is that there's more private security employed, like, more people employed in private security around the world than there are in police. So that's one refutation of it. But actually, let's just be much more concrete. Like in places where the state is actually utterly incompetent, mm-hmm. such as mm-hmm. South Africa, people, when they can afford it, will just live in gated communities and will just hire their own police and will just – and not necessarily even rich people, just like if you want to go from point A to point B in Johannesburg, you better get a fucking like driver, um, depending on where yeah. you're driving through, who's like – armed and yeah and don't fuck around because like you don't want to rely on the police to help you out in a place like johannesburg or a place like um i don't know like rio like some of the parts of rio de janeiro like you don't fuck around there and it's not the police that are going to help you and yet there is a state in those places and people the market solution for dealing with the level of insecurity in those places is not to deal with the state and not only that but furthermore you actually might be make be putting yourself in more danger by going to the state because it might actually be the police officer that fucks you up. So could this be an argument then for well-run states? <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Let me see. Because those are two like really, really corrupt states. So maybe is that an argument for well-run states? Like, I'm, I'm trying my best to be to, to be difficult here. No, no, that's a really good. I, that's a really. Good I instinctively question. quite like what Rothbard is offering. So. I'm, I'm trying to be difficult. So let's take uh, a state that people would generally think of as good would be something like Australia. Well, generally speaking, I think people think Australia is a pretty good place to be. Well, people vote with their feet. Um, Lots of people trying to get into Australia. Yeah. Yeah, but okay, so even within Australia, it's not uniform. Like there's parts of Australia where like – it's really dangerous yeah, to walk yeah. down the street. And there's parts of Australia where you could be like a 21-year-old chick and walk down the street naked at 1am in the morning and you'll be absolutely fucking safe or like 
pretty you'll be like pretty fucking mm-hmm. safe mm-hmm. <laughs> so even there it's not uniform and i would say actually saying that out loud now i actually don't think that's a function of the state necessarily but like the mm-hmm. culture of the mm-hmm. people yep. who live in those different parts of of australia it's more a function of like the community or the residents of the the space than the uh functionality of the state itself to that then to what extent is that culture informed by the knowledge that there is an sort of an organ of punishment that we've internalized this this idea that we will be punished by a big scary entity like the state if we do something wrong that's an that's an interesting one because the places that I'm thinking about that are particularly dangerous are also places where the state is pretty like punishing. Mm, mm. Uh, so I'm thinking in particular like certain like uh, like indigenous communities in like the Northern Territory are fucking dangerous, and like uh, but at the same time they do not have a good relationship with like mm, the police mm-hmm. and and all the all the cops. Oh, sorry, the sorry the police or the courts or um or lawyers and yet they have very high like incarceration. Mm, so it's like mm. they also they simultaneously have high rates of arrest and high incarceration rates and they also have high rates of like yeah. violence so like arguably from a law and order punishment point of view they have very effective states mm, because they mm. have very high incarceration rates right and yet they have very very high rates of like interpersonal violence so like those are not compatible I'll respond to that as anti-Rothbard bot and then we can put a pin in it because it has to do with state (laughs) ideology, which Rothbard talks about a lot in what I think is one of the most interesting parts of this. So maybe you could say, well, those are parts of Australia which haven't internalised the state to the same extent. The state. So maybe it's it's having a state which, which is so powerful Powerful to the point where it, it invades your mind. One which, <laughs> one which makes you compliant because you want to comply. Maybe that is actually what, what is desirable. We just need, we just need Benito <laughs> to come along and <laughs> psyop you into conformity. <laughs> so the next section is what the state is. Or do you, do you have anything more to say about what yeah. the state isn't? No, I think I think given that we are um given that we're inclined towards agreeing with Rothbard, your like anti Rothbard bot is really good. I think <laughs> I'm trying my best. Um <laughs> Yeah, try our best. I'll try and put on some anti Rothbard as well. Um do you want to explain what the state is whilst I grab a drink of water? Yeah, sure. So <laughs> thanks. <laughs> what Rothbard does is he he quotes this guy, Franz Oppenheimer, who's a German sociologist who determined two mutually exclusive ways of acquiring wealth. So one of these is through economic means, and he calls this the, the natural path for man. And it is interesting reading Rothbard after, for example, the Xenofeminist Manifesto, in that Rothbard will describe things as natural in a very normative way. So because something is natural for humans, it's the right thing to do. So people interacting with each other economically so freely producing things and then freely exchanging what they have produced is the the natural path for man and he compares this to political means which is one-sided confiscation 
the seizure of someone else's goods or services using force or violence. He, he describes this in a number of ways, none of which are flattering. It's robbery, it's unnatural, it's parasitic. And not only does this siphon resources away from productive people to parasites, but it also disincentivizes long-term production, so it's doubly destructive. And so with this in mind, he offers another definition of the state, in addition to the one Levi read out earlier. It's the organization of the political means. So it's, I quote, it is a systematization of the predatory process over a given territory. What the state is in, in Rothbard's telling is it's this organization, it's an administrative apparatus which exists to siphon money away from people who are producing wealth through economic means, so freely producing, freely trading mm-hmm. with one another. And then using this siphoned wealth to strengthen itself and to make itself more able to, to siphon off wealth. And this can happen in a number of ways, some of which people mm. like, or at least many people like, because they provide conveniences. So one yeah. way that this can be done is what I brought up earlier, is by effectively scaring people enough by having a monopoly on violence so that there's less petty crime. And the, the parasite, Apparently. which is what he calls the state, likes this because it renders the host <laughs> more productive and more amenable to being parasitized upon. He also goes, he really shows off his anarchist credentials, his right anarchist credentials, when he also talks about, um, he, talk, he says that production is anterior to theft because you, you have to have produced something to steal something. And therefore... The free yeah. market is anterior to the state, and the state has never been created as part of a social contract. It has always been the result of conquest and exploitation. Yeah. So I've, I think there's some really important points to note here. Uh, I'll say... Hmm, yeah, there's start? a lot here. Yeah. There's, there's some really interesting... So should I go first for... Okay, first I'll say what I think it is nice about the way that he's mm-hmm. framed it, and I'll raise one of my legitimate, like not even being anti-Rothbard, but like my, an actual legitimate mm-hmm. criticism mm-hmm. that I have of libertarianism. Um, uh, so firstly, I really like very simple, concise, and I think um, true uh, description of the state is the organization of the political means. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like I think as I've read more and more history, like about the Romans or the ancient Egyptians or whatever society that, okay, maybe I should dial it back a little bit. <clears throat> so uh, as I've mentioned a number of times, like on this show, like I'm indigenous Australian and one of the things I really struggled with when I was younger is like thinking through like the cultural differences between me and like the people I was spending time around with at school. Cause like, even though we grew up very Western in a lot of ways, we still had like certain aspects of like family values and stuff that were not necessarily Western. And one of those things was like uh, property rights. And like, even when I was younger, I, I like, I legitimately like didn't understand what property rights were. And, uh, 
like not that I was running around stealing stuff with people <laughs> or whatever, but like uh <laughs> definitely raising my eyebrows. But like <laughs> um but like I'd say that come like that lack of understanding comes through in like um so like you know, in certain parts of my family, like shoplifting was very common. So like go down to like a toy store or whatever, like my aunt and stuff were like just still shit. And <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I, I think that like people enact their values, right? So that's her enacting that is a direct reflection of her not understanding and or not valuing like property rights. And part of the reason why I've gone so crazy on property rights the last like few years since coming into contact with Bitcoin is because it's forced me to like deal with this quite deep. Uh, it comes out in the form of explicit knowledge in like um, economic text and stuff but there's also like a deep cultural thing to it um and so when i look at other cultures i often look at them in comparison to like say some of uh no also i shouldn't say like (laughs) uh me being indigenous is not correlated with the uh shoplifting experience (laughs) i had plenty of white friends who who, who levi's made a concrete link (laughs) <laughs> no, 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 no. The 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 link to property rights for me on a cultural level was more to like co- uh, collective senses of property mm-hmm, and land mm-hmm. rights. So, like in Australia, we talk about land rights, community level land rights, um, where like a com- particular community or family has like connection to the land, and they don't necessarily like view the land like cutting it up into plots and like allocating them to individuals or individual families. I think of more of like the community has this like connection with the land, this ancestral connection to the land. And we're all like custodians of the land is the language that we use. We don't even necessarily say owners. We say traditional owners or custodians or whatever. Um, So when I've been reading over history, like I almost see it through the lens of like both as an Australian and also as an Indigenous Australian who thinks about like like, uh, native title and Indigenous land Mm -hmm. rights and stuff. Mm -hmm. And... One of the interesting things about like Indigenous Australia is like traditionally we didn't have like a state. Like when like a lot of the issues between Indigenous Australia and uh, like the colonies and then subsequently the Commonwealth have come from like there hasn't been like a state to intermediate the uh, political uh, interface between like First Nations peoples and and the Commonwealth or the mm-hmm. Crown, like the British Crown. Um, so I really see what Rothbard's talking about. You've got like all these people who are hyperproductive, so like going out and starting businesses and stuff and like having submitting themselves to the discipline of the market and like creating things, selling things and only like getting the money that they get from the market because they've given somebody else something that the other person is willing to give up money for. And then you've got this other thing, this institution, which like historically my family always has had like this issue with like the state because like the, the state of New South Wales like <laughs> like it violated our property rights historically <laughs> um and so so like then you've got this other thing which for whatever reason in different historical contexts has gone around to those people who are productive and said for whatever reason this philosophy or this religion or whatever and said here's our justification why we're going to take part of your income this year or we're going to take like your land this year or we're going to take whatever this year or we're going to conscript your son to go and fight in this war this year and i think like the organization of the political means is just such like a, a powerfully succinct way of, of saying it so that's one of the things i liked about 
mm-hmm. about this. It's very good language to use, I found. Sorry, that was quite rambly. No, that was good. That, that does sum up a lot of the good aspects of it. And it does also bring to mind something that we discussed a fair bit in the, the episode we did on The Conquest of Bread by Kropotkin, where he, I don't know if he, Rothbard explicitly says it in this book, but it's very much implicit, if, if it's not explicit, that human beings naturally assemble themselves into complex societies. It's just when you put humans together and leave them in a place for a period of time, they self-organize, and that this self-organization happens without a state administrative apparatus. And you can actually you can get lots of very, very positive things from this self-organization. You don't need a state apparatus in order for that organization to suddenly be good. Yeah, like all the degenerates coming into our Discord. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to the Discord. <laughs> Shout out to names. Um, uh, yeah, no, it's really interesting. So can I can I make a point about the part that I don't like about it? That would be it? really good, especially no. if it's yeah, if it's if it's not just anti Rothbard bot, but it's actually Levi. Yeah. So my biggest concern about the libertarian philosophy stuff that I see that I've been reading so far, and granted I'm not that ex- knowledgeable about it, but um, is is there use of this term natural? Yeah. Like as Popper, I think Popper or whoever came like the refutation against the naturalist normative fallacy. Uh, so it's roughly saying that like such and such behavior is natural, such and such behavior is not natural, and saying that like, well, because it's in alignment with nature, whatever that is, and nature is good or whatever, therefore acting in accordance with nature is like the morally good thing to do. Now, I don't think that's quite what he's saying. So if I bend my mind a little bit and just take into account what other people are, I've read, other libertarians, I think when they say natural law, I think. Mm. I'm I'm not entirely sure, but I think what they because they're pretty vague about it. If if you ask me, like even Rothbard's kind of vague about it. Like he just kind of says natural. Oh, so law he he doesn't, doesn't go really... into this normative use of natural in other works because I just kind of assume that he did. Uh, maybe a bit. Maybe I'm just like blanking on this one. But I th- I th- I think I feel as though like it's not unpacked enough it's kind of just stated as if it's like this thing that is like almost like self-evident and i don't think that any knowledge is self-evident i think it's all explanatory and needs to be conveyed refuted um empirically tested or whatever so forth like it's like none of this is just self-evident that such and such way is natural but more a more direct criticism of it would be like well isn't being coercive natural like, how can anything that humans do not be natural? Mm. Like, the issue at stake here isn't whether or not, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, isn't whether or not free exchange is natural and coerce, coercion is not natural. That's kind of, I almost feel like them trying to bring that sort of language into the conversation, like, weakens their argument. Yeah, well, even more fundamentally, and this is a problem not only with Rothbard, but a problem with very, very many thinkers, is that, I'm often very unclear on what natural means as opposed to humans. So, okay, an extreme yeah. example, an atom bomb. It's using, it's using the same laws of physics as something that most people, even with a woolly definition of natural, would acknowledge to be natural, like a flower growing in its natural habitat. It's using the same laws yeah. of physics 
it's not it doesn't exist in a different physical reality if by natural they mean something that would not exist without a human that's uh, that that's a definition you can talk about it does still feel somewhat artificial in that you could say okay well why don't you define natural as something that frogs didn't make as opposed to humans yeah and why is it uh, why 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 do you why do you draw the line at any particular point yeah yeah with, say with technology like th- there's fundamentally nothing that we can do that breaks the laws of physics like by definition that's almost tautological to say mm-hmm. that so like any technology that we make is constrained like we we can't make a technology that breaks the laws of physics all our technology is constrained by and utilizes our knowledge of the laws of of physics thus far developed and if you say like well nuclear bombs are unnatural it's like yeah but why not why aren't polyester clothes unnatural some people do say polyester clothes are unnatural so they don't wear them so they wear cotton or bamboo it's like yeah but we cultivate mm. cotton and the cotton bamboo. didn't weave it's itself. not like the cotton that you make like it didn't grow out of the ground that it didn't way. weave itself and also like it's like the cotton that you get from like the farm is not the same cotton that just grows out in the field like that stuff's been like essentially bioengineered for generations like where'd you draw the line why not just walk around naked like in the sahara or wherever don't use any technology and just see how far you fucking get like everything that we do is a creative act of our mind and none of it is unnatural because none of it is breaking the laws of physics and humans are a product of nature and our very special thing that we can do is that we can do all these transformations on our environment that other species can't do so i think this like entire conversation around natural unnatural and natural law and that sort of stuff like to me when i read libertarian thinkers as much as i want to agree with them once they start talking about natural law i just go like come on man like you got to bring something better than that to this conversation like you know yeah to me Oftentimes, when people use terms like natural, it seems to be they're saying something that's positively valenced and which might be a result of human action, but not not completely. There might be some non-human activity that leads to a natural product. Yeah, a positively valenced product whose creation is not entirely that of a human. It's very vague, and I don't find arguments based on what is natural compelling. I guess also it kind of sidesteps a very difficult problem when you're talking about what you should do in a normative sense of what are you optimizing for? Because, for example, with with this whole tract, Anatomy of the State, Rothbard clearly has a series of things that he wants to optimize for. So he wants to optimize for freedom. He wants to optimize for productivity. He wants to optimize for peaceful relations between people, which is interesting given that one of the most common criticisms of libertarianism and anarcho-capitalism is that it would lead to violence. So he, he clearly has this group of things that he's trying to optimize for. When you when people say that you should do something because it's natural, oftentimes I feel like they're sidestepping the question of what they're aiming for with their prescriptions. Yeah. Because they say, well, well, it's it's yeah. natural and that is why you should do it. Actually, you know what? Sorry, I just had a realization. Uh okay, so hmm, this is a very weak, weak like part of the libertarian philosophy actually isn't it yeah, extremely. because uh 
Yeah, because if you if you uh so in Popper's so okay so Popper made this really important point that like <clears throat> a lot of the issues in epistemology come from an argument from authority. They say like mm-hmm. here's this authority. Say like the god king emperor in ancient Egypt is this authority, and it's like basically might makes right ethically and epistemologically. <clears throat> but to generalize what Popper was saying. If instead of just thinking about authority, you thought about like the source of the knowledge, mm. like, well, I derived this knowledge from this particular source, therefore it's true. So the way that I put it in my head as just my meme is I say to myself, myself, try to judge ideas based on their merit and their content, not on their source or their provenance. Mm. So it doesn't matter where it came from, but it matters like what is the actual content of the ideas. So that you could take the ideas out of my mouth, put them into Jack's mouth. It doesn't matter that we're different skin colors or whatever, come from different backgrounds. Does the idea still hold mm-hmm. water? Mm-hmm. Obviously, except in the cases where like the statements being made are specifically about like the person or whatever, potentially, with those sorts of caveats, right? Um, but like, <clears throat> do you look at like where the idea came from or do you actually look at its content? And in this particular case, it almost feels as though like the natural law argument is actually an argument from the provenance or the source of like the action. So it's like, okay, I'm going to say that like such and such an action is in alignment with what I call natural, mm, mm. natural law or nature. And then because it's in alignment with that, therefore it's ethical. And the thing that's acting in uh, contravention to uh, nature is unnatural and therefore unethical. I don't know if that's an exact correspondence, but like, it has that kind of feeling to me, you know, like it's quite, it's kind of in that realm, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I do agree that this is, this is one of the weakest aspects of libertarian and, and cap philosophy, how very often they'll start talking about things being natural and th- not, not even openly saying much of the time that that makes it the right thing to do they'll just leave it there it's like oh it's it's, it's like implicit it's the same it's the same way yeah, it's as implicit. like the 45 year old divorced yoga mum who got two into crystals at a health food shop <laughs> telling you to like eat some grain superfood because it's natural it's natural, <laughs> it's, natural. Yeah. it's the right thing to do yeah, and engaging in the free market exchange is also natural. This is this is Rothbard in his his dream catcher and incense character arc. <laughs> so okay, so if, I think we've drilled that point yeah. hard enough. We're not happy with that. I I would say that you can almost just make like uh, like if it were me, I wouldn't be making that argument. I don't know what argument would I make. To me, it, it again, I shouldn't just say things are self evident. It's important to to state what you're aiming for in setting out any yeah, yeah. any code of prescriptive behavior even if that prescription is effectively let people do what they want you need to set out what you're actually trying to get to like what do you want and so, rothbard rothbard so, has actually said this in many many places over a period of decades he likes freedom he likes free exchange he likes productivity things like that great you don't need to bring it is natural into that. It kind of it confuses things. No. So so you could take like a consequentialist argument to it. It's like, do you want to live in a society that is more prosperous, that mm. has more material wealth, and where more people can live life that they want to live? Hopper I think 
makes the argument a little bit better that the non-aggression principle is called like basically like don't don't violate other people's property, including their body. <clears throat> if you basically have property rights and the non-aggression principle, and so people can only like engage with one another through like uh, consensual transfers of property rights, so like exchange, <clears throat> gifting, and that sort of stuff. To the degree that a society respects those values, they will be able to produce more material wealth. And even if there's disagreements between, like, say, like different religious groups or whatever, they can at least like live separately, not mess with one another, and potentially even engage, engage in trade. Mm-hmm. That's a much you're going to end up with a much more wealthy, prosperous society mm-hmm. than like one where there's random often arbitrary exceptions to like who has property rights, who does not have property rights and who can we transgress in their uh, like, like we can arbitrarily like uh, be aggressive or coercive against like this group of people or against this individual or whatever. So he may, I guess it's a consequential argument. Yeah, it does seem to be that way. These, these aren't really value ethics we're dealing with here. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> no. Oh no, I guess I guess actually I guess if your value that, is is wealth and prosperity, then mm. yes, it is. But it's not clear like not everybody cares about those things. At least they say that, yeah. that maybe they'd rather be poorer but live in a more based civilization. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm optimizing for. It's I'm trying to maximize being based. maximize the quantity of basedness in society and reduce cringe to a minimum. <laughs> so should we talk about how the state preserves yep. itself? And this is one of the most interesting parts of this, I thought, particularly when he starts talking about state ideology. So the state preserves itself. It uh, in order to preserve itself, it must manufacture the ideological consent, either active support or at least at the very least passive resignation of at least half the subjects, and uh, the general mechanism by which that ideological consent is manufactured and secured by the state is spearheaded by the intellectual class and propaganda and ideology. He calls it ideology. I want to stop you there just so I can say he divides the ruling part of a state, which he keeps calling the parasite, into a short-term and a long-term <laughs> mechanism or groups of mechanisms, and the short-term mechanism is violence and coercion. But he said that yeah. while, this op- while this works in the short term, so if someone is doing something against the state, then the state agents of coercive violence can be sent out and uh, knock this guy on the head and make him stop doing whatever he's doing, such as writing books against the state and then quoting himself at the beginning of the book saying that he is the greatest threat to the state. (laughs) (laughs) And then the long-term mechanism is ideology. And he said that you can't have a stable parasitic relationship with with a ruled group <laughs> so, of people so reasonable. just using violence because it's it's too expensive. It, it's effectively a market mechanism. It's just too expensive to do that. You need to make them either support you or, like you said, just kind of resign themselves passively to your existence and your parasitism. Okay, yeah, uh, please go on. Sorry for for jumping in. No, no, that's, that's, I think that's a really important point, yeah. So it's like the stability of the ruling class over time. And to the degree that um, he's basically saying like if uh, if a, if the ruling caste loses 
the perceived legitimacy, ideological consent of the ruled, then it's only a matter of time until basically um, they're going to lose power, you know, because of revolution or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so should I read out a particular quote? Um, oh yeah, okay. So for for this essential acceptance, the majority must be persuaded by ideology that their government is good, wise, and at the very least inevitable, and certainly better than any other conceivable alternatives. For example, like other states. Um, so demonizing like the governments mm, of, mm-hmm. of other parts of the world. Um, they must promote this ideology among the people. Um, oh, sorry, promoting this ideology among the people is the vital social task of the intellectuals. So we've sort of <laughs> mentioned it on this podcast before, like which is really playing our hand here. But the degree to which the intelligentsia of, say, like the Western academic class and the or would you say like the the journalists and stuff of mainstream media, almost the like cathedral. this priestly class, the cathedral to use Yarvin's <laughs> wording. <laughs> yeah, the priest, the priest, they're kind of the like secular cast, priests, but not a based a, a based Rene Guénon priestly cast. <laughs> <laughs> These are more Evola's uh, lunar Tellurian feminine priests. <laughs> Names, names made a comment when I when we were talking to him on the Discord at one point about like how, how impressed he was <laughs> of you, Jack, about how you could just like weave in random Evola <laughs> concepts into any conversation. This is a disease. <laughs> this is not something to be admired. <laughs> this is blessing and a curse. You can just at any point rip out rip out Evolian <laughs> philosophy, Evolian perspective. <laughs> As as a teaser for future episodes, we're both reading The Decline of the West by Spengler and I'm getting definite Evola vibes from it. Not that strong not Evola. that they necessarily agree on things. In fact, they definitely don't agree on a large number of things, but more that it's such a strange and foreign, but internally quite consistent intellectual system, which you can just step into and then start viewing the world from. <laughs> So, back to Rothbard. Um, he says, uh, basically, the state benefits from the intellectuals, right? Because they're pumping out propaganda. Um, but also, the intellectuals benefit from the state as well. And in particular, they basically get to escape from the vicissitudes and competition of the free market. Mm, mm. So, as an intellectual... Actually, Jack sent me a really interesting book called, uh, what, The Inter- Independent Scholar? Or something like that. Uh, it's an ebook written by Justin Murphy, who's doing really, really interesting stuff, effectively living as an independent scholar. Like he's crowdfunding academic research, effectively, which is cool. Yeah. I recommend looking so into why, it. Why bring, he's got some really interesting things. So, why I bring him up is because basically I, I love independent media, <laughs> love OnlyFans. And. <laughs> <laughs> The golden age of amateur porn. No. So um, basically, I also highlight like CoffeeZilla of YouTube, like independent journalism, amazing investigative journalism and, and so forth. Uh, or I'll also bring up people like uh, Ben Thompson of Stratechery, this like big um, tech and strategy um, writer who runs his own blog and is doing really well. Like there's these new independent 
it's almost like independent intellectuals, journalists, um, even professors who have left the academy or like journalists who have left like the Wall Street Journal or whatever and started their own business online. Where like actually now people can sort of make their own sustainable businesses doing this sort of like intellectual work online. But like when Rothbard was writing this, that didn't exist yet. Like I it's pretty well, pretty difficult to essentially be an intellectual um, outside of an institution for the most part. Mm, mm. They were pretty rare pre-internet. Whereas like we're living through this like renaissance of like independent intellectuals, um, which is really interesting. But I wonder what Rothbard would think of that now. Yeah, that is a really interesting question actually, how he'd consider the internet. Because he, he Probably think it's died a good in the 90s at some point, I think. So before. Yeah, yeah. Like the sort of consumer internet was beginning to get going at that stage, but obviously yeah, nothing, like, nothing like it is now. Yeah. Cause like, say, say take, um, you know, say take Ben Thompson of Stratechery, you know, he's, he's subjecting himself to the discipline of the market. Like at any point he could lose his following and his, if he doesn't sustain like his output and the quality, like both the quantity and quality of his output. And so that means like, I mean, he does amazing work, but it also sounds like pretty, like he's pretty obsessive. He has to, like he, he's writing like 2000 words every day and like pumping it out like all the time and running his business and stuff. Um, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Like his, uh, whereas like you can see like a lot of people aren't going to be able to do that or aren't or don't want to be able to do that. And so like, say like a job at a university as an academic uh, I mean, academics, like some academics work pretty hard, like uh, it's variable, but like, um, yeah, I know, it's interesting. Non-institutional intellectuals are really interesting. It's interesting bringing that up with non-institutional intellectuals in the context of Rothbard, because while, while a number of them, or maybe a greater proportion of them, now that there are other avenues for funding, won't just be effectively offering ideological justifications for the continued existence of the state as it currently is. The market also doesn't necessarily select for truth. It, in the case of... No. Especially, no, no, especially sure. if, <laughs> if it comes to academic or intellectual work and then publishing true. it, it's <laughs> to a large extent selecting for entertainment value, which is why you now see this whole this perfusion, this, this proliferation of quote-unquote, independent, maverick media organisations, most of which seem to <laughs> like exist as basically like YouTube reaction channels for mainstream media where they'll just be like, <laughs> oh, I read this thing by CNN and it fucking sucked. And it's like, yeah, nice one, mate. You're not really adding much to the conversation, are you? Well, it's like, like Candace Owens yeah. or, <laughs> or like Ben Shapiro or something. <laughs> Just, just, just professional whinges. Yeah, it just—it's just so fucking annoying. <laughs> Do you know the Hodge twins? <laughs> Did you ever watch the Hodge twins? I think I last watched them when I was like nineteen. Uh, TMW. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, <laughs> twin muscle workout. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know they've got a massive YouTube channel. They're not doing workout shit anymore. They're now the conservative twins. <laughs> I think you mentioned this to me like last year or so that they got into right wing politics. <laughs> yeah, man, and it's like bigger than their than their original channel. <laughs> oh, really? I mean, look. To be fair, yeah, it's so two funny. handsome, muscly dudes <laughs> talking about 
anything will probably do pretty well. So just like talking about politics, whatever. <laughs> so funny. Uh, yeah, they just like parlayed their their uh, like workout audience into <laughs> into, into political infotainment. And then they, uh, I looked at what they were selling with their affiliate links, and they've selling got they're like they're like, no, no, they've moved up in the world, man. Are you they're like no selling out, selling. Uh, Testosterone supplementation is obligatory for right wing commentators in the United States. No, they're still doing that. Oh, okay, good, but they're, good, they've good, gone good, even good. bigger. They're, was, they're was, also hocking cars. I was cars. very concerned there. <laughs> they're, they're no, they're hocking cars now, man. Law, law of nature. <laughs> like literally, like Dodge, or was it Dodge or like Ram, Ram, Ram cars or something like that? You know, like. Some fucking American car brand has got like this deal with them. <laughs> when I was looking at it. Like, so literally, like car giveaways. Yeah, so <laughs> they're crazy. When can we start doing Anyways. That? Oh, man. Could you imagine? What car brand could <laughs> we be? What sort of car brand would we be? Great wall. I will sell out to CCP for enough money <laughs> yeah. just instantly. <laughs> I will be the car brand. Great wall and Alibaba. <laughs> <laughs> Only communist brands on this show. <laughs> Every single episode for the foreseeable future will just be really, really positive reviews of Xi Jinping's work. <laughs> so, um, uh, some of the basic. So, basically, Rothbard spends a bit of time um, talking about different examples of like excuses intellectuals will make. So, I won't read all of them. I've got maybe one quote from one one of them. Mm-hmm. And jump. Feel free to jump in with any of them. But he says like. Um, uh, okay, so there's like a protection racket, so they can instill fear of like other rulers, so they can like drum up like oh fear of the the Russians or whatever. Um, you can hijack patriotism, so you can, so you know like people feel patriotic to their homeland, Ruritania or Waldovia, <laughs> <laughs> um, and and so the state can like make its make uh, identify itself with the homeland. So that would be like Russians. Thinking that the Russian state is like is Russia. part of being like supporting the is Russian rather than you know and it's it's really interesting with Russia actually because it's such a diverse country you got like all these different sub pockets of like ethnic groups and different where like there's actually parts of Russia where they they don't even feel Russian they're just like we're this type of people and we're like Muslim and whatever um, and like we're just happen to be a part of Russia because that's how things have turned out you know um, but. To the degree that intellectuals can like change the ideology so that Shout people out to Alexander identify Dugan. their homeland. <laughs> then you've also got tradition. So, okay, if a state has been there long enough, then it kind of becomes seen as like, oh, well, this dynasty has existed here for so long now. It's a part of being Chinese or Japanese or whatever. Um, there's collectivization and the attack on the individual. So like delegitimizing the needs, wants, goals of individuals and saying they're like subordinate or illegitimate compared to like the needs of society. And then basically saying that like the state is the embodiment of the society in some way. Um, one point that I did want to read, and I'll just read this out because I thought this was really interesting in our day and age, post-COVID and um, especially with like the breakdown of institutional trust that's been discussed a lot in the last couple of years. He's talking about what's called priestcraft, what he calls priestcraft. Mm-hmm. And he says, quote, many and varied have been the arguments by which the state and its intellectuals have induced their subjects to support their rule. Basically, the strands of argument may be summed up as follows. A, the state rulers are great and wise men, in parentheses. They rule by divine right. They are the aristocracy of men. They are scientific experts, for example. 
mm-hmm. end parentheses, much greater and wiser than the good, but rather simple subjects, and B, <clears throat> uh, rule by the extent government is inevitable, absolutely necessary, and far better than the indescribable evils that would ensue upon its downfall. The union of church and state was one of the oldest and most successful of these ideological devices. The ruler was either anointed by God or, in the case of the absolute rule of many oriental despotisms, was himself God. A good example would be like um, the Egyptian pharaohs. Uh, Hence, any resistance to his rule would be blasphemy. The state's priestcraft, i.e. the intellectuals, performed the basic intellectual function of obtaining popular support and even worship of the rulers. Yeah, I found that really, really interesting. That goes back to the um, one of the questions I had earlier that I, I put a pin in. So in terms of reducing petty violence, for example, maybe instead of trying to get rid of a state is what we should be trying to do is getting a state with an ideology which is a sufficiently competitive memeplex that people internalise the state ideology and don't wish to commit violence against each other because the state has told them not to. That's really interesting. Hmm. Yeah. I, uh, so, the, I mean, I guess, uh, I guess one thing about that would be you could say it doesn't have to be a state ideology. It could be some other belief system. So, for example, Christianity doesn't encourage mm. petty violence. Like, <laughs> the opposite. It encourages you not to participate in uh, hitting your neighbour over the head with a stick because you want to take something from them. It's quite explicit in telling you not to do that. So it mm. doesn't have to be a state ideology, I suppose, or even it, a state religion, yeah. an ideology, a state belief system. It can yeah. be a belief system separate. Yeah, and the ANCAPs would probably say, and the libertarians would probably say something to the effect of like, an individual can work out for themselves that it's better to engage in free exchange and mm. to respect other people's property rights and that like okay <clears throat> maybe not everybody's going to figure that out within their lifetime but it certainly seems as though like historically people are figuring it out and most people want to move to countries where they have low levels of violence property rights free trade like the vast majority of immigration is out of lawless uh low property rights, high violence civilizations, uh, like, sorry, countries into like places like Australia. Um, That's interesting that you say lawless. Do you think law can exist without a state? Well, yeah, that's the interesting thing about what the ANCAPs are saying, right? Mm. Is they're saying that you can have law, but essentially, I, I guess like if I had to summarize it, sort of bring it down into a nutshell, the question is really like, in order for these functions to be performed, do you is it necessary to coerce people or can you still have those functions by voluntary contract, essentially? So in the case of like somebody submitting themselves to say like contract for employment, like if you signed before going into the employment that like, yeah, this is what I'll do and if I break it, here's the uh, like consequences and for anything that doesn't fall within this contract we're going to defer to such and such a court private court specifically i agree to arbitration by that court as i enter the contract would someone who just doesn't agree to that be able to walk around and try to take people's stuff i guess those people can retaliate 
So is is this sort of society one in which people can retaliate violently? Oh, yeah. So that's a really good question. So at least Hopper would say, and I think Rothbard would explain the same thing from what I remember of Rothbard's stuff, is basically saying that, like, um, the non-aggression principle basically states that you don't use force, coercion, violence, or the threat of force, coercion, or violence to violate another person's property rights. However, violence is legitimate in the case of self-defense and defense of your property or to deter people Mm. from incursions upon your property. So someone breaks into your house at night and then suddenly the Doom Eternal theme music starts playing. Fucking blow them away. (laughs) Get your shoddy out. Yeah, yeah. Pump action. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, but like legitimately. So that's, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's actually not a super complicated like philosophy. Mm. It's basically like don't fuck with other people's body and don't fuck with other people's stuff. And if somebody tries to fuck with your stuff, like blow them away. (laughs) (laughs) Sold. Um, But essentially if everybody just agrees to do that, then we can all engage in exchange and like enter into consensual contracts. And if anybody fucks up, then like they're in violation of their contracts or whatever. So like if they're on private property and they're trespassing or so so forth. Um, Yeah, so I think the issue here is really like in order to do those things, the question is really like in order to have functioning relationships between individuals and organizations, do you need like that third party, say like a law court for arbitration or a police force, does that need to be in the form of a coercive institution that has a monopoly on the use of violence within a jurisdiction. Is that the only way that you can have that? Mm. And they would say, like, it's not only is this not a fanciful thing to think, but this is already the case. Like, it is already the case that a lot of people use private security firms. But I guess in this context, and, and so forth. The, the anarchist idea of society simply reducing in scale so instead of living in Melbourne, where I forget the population of Melbourne now, but it's over Five four million, million or something. Yeah. But instead of living in a population of that size, which is in some or in many ways somewhat abstract, in that I don't know, <laughs> very yeah. many, like a a very large proportion of those four four and a half million people who shared the same city as as where I currently live, society becomes smaller scale based around groups where if you don't if you don't know everyone then you probably are like one node away from everyone else like you probably know someone who knows someone else in which case you you have social regulation of your behavior so you have reputational risk and it might yeah. be of the size where if someone is repeatedly violating other people's property rights or getting violent or in some way in some way, contravening a contract entered into when you enter that community, the community can deal with them in some way that it sees fit. Is that, yeah. so is I, that something that would happen? I would the world get smaller in some sense? No. Like, I don't think it's an issue of scale. And I'll use a concrete example. Say in Melbourne, there's the MCG, right? And the MCG can, with standing room, have like 110, 120,000 people, right? Mm, mm. But every single person who goes onto that is private property, as far as I'm aware. 
maybe it's not private property, maybe Eddie had his private property. And uh, they enter into a contract when they purchase that ticket and they step foot on those grounds mm-hmm. and they use private security firms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if somebody fucks up, they don't call the police. The security takes them out, kicks them out. Snipers right. on the so, roof. <laughs> so that's the Blow situation where off. you have a large scale. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so like that's a situation where you've got a large scale piece of infrastructure dealing at a large enough scale where the relationships are essentially abstract, impersonal, and yet they're dealing with the security and they're dealing with each individual kind of um, impersonally through contracts and through exchange of, you know, in this case, Mm. money for participation. So I don't think it's an issue of, and not only that, like you can look at very large organizations that are dealing with individuals who are dealing with it through contracts. Again, like look at Netflix, like has hundreds of millions of users, but deals with them through contracts. Yes, it's automated, but like the point is you can have large scale engineering infrastructure, large scale social infrastructure, large scale organizations that deal with one another through contracts. The issue is whether or not all those things are done voluntarily, essentially. Mm, mm. Or do you have like a third party there that is a non-voluntary coercive institution that can do things using force? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So with all that said, I can note one concern I have about libertarianism and ANCAP stuff is like as much as I like thinking about these things and I see what they're saying about like voluntary engagement and contracts and property rights and all that sort of stuff, I also think like, yeah, but say like in a thousand years, say like this this trend continues where we get more and more freedom and more and more material wealth and more and more advancement of technology and all this sort of stuff and we keep on solving problems, like maybe off somewhere in the future there's this society where there's no more states and everybody's just engaging with each other like, <laughs> you know, like voluntarily. Sovereign and you have individual. Like, the Mormons over there doing their thing and they're minding their own business and you have like the Amish over here minding their own business and you've got their fucking new atheists being a bunch of wankers over here doing our thing. (laughs) (laughs) And Sam Harris is still alive being a wanker. (laughs) Shout out to Sam Harris. I actually really like him. I have a soft spot for him. He has such a nice voice. (laughs) Well, I subscribe to him so I give him enough fucking money I can make fun of him. (laughs) Um, And, uh, and, uh, so maybe that's the case, except it seems as though like right now, concretely in this century, like I don't really see the actual, like it, it often seems like too like uh, idealistic, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. okay, but right now in every single place that I fly to in the world, except for like Antarctica, like, or like the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, there's going to be a state there. And it's either mm-hmm. going to be a democratic state or it's going to be a non-democratic state. And God forbid, I would in almost every situation want to live in a place that's got a democratic state. And that's a hell of a lot better than like the authoritarian places that you could live. And I, thus far, I don't see any like legitimate, like instances of like this kind of ANCAP libertarian thing, like what, but maybe that's just a matter of my ignorance and that is happening somewhere in the world. I just don't know about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I do recognize that, what I'm about to say actually falls into one of Rothbard's justifications or false justifications for why states exist. The, uh, to, to basically scare people about the alternatives or say that foreign states would be so much worse than your current state. It does strike me that it's 
an evolutionarily pretty competitive model for organising people, at least when it comes to dealing with other groups of people. States are really good at organising violence against other states, whether that is to expand the geographic area which a state controls or to fend off attacks from other states. And if you don't have a state, if you are a private individual and you're paying your your subscription for like whatever security service you you want if next door is the equivalent of i don't know china with with over a billion people and a military run by a centralized government you're probably going to get invaded pretty quickly yeah and so i yeah I, I get what you're saying. And I think if you sort of um, decompose this into like what would be really nice versus like r- realistic, I sort of have this inclination towards like, yeah, it would be cool to have a, like a world where there's free city states or like smaller countries where everybody there is like consenting to their participation in the laws and all that sort of stuff. But realistically, I don't see that anywhere happening now maybe i'm just ignorant and the gap between where the world is now and getting towards more of that is like i don't see that happening in our lifetime maybe i'm just being pessimistic as nice as it sounds maybe um like i just see there's this massive gap so i'm not holding i'm not going to hold my breath for this stuff in the meantime i think that like democracy is like it it, it's got it's got its issues but like (laughs) it's 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 not so bad given that it's actually realistic and it's actually a system that exists right now. Yeah, because that's an interesting point with libertarianism or even more so for anarcho-capitalism is it's hard to see the transition between the world today and an anarcho-capitalist. So not, not even the entire world, but a significant stretch of territory where it is, well, I was going to say governed, but... Oh, I guess somewhat self-governed no, by individuals within it, like according according to anarcho-capitalist ideals. It's hard to see like, that transition point. Here's here's, here's okay counterpoint: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. sovereignty services, and this is yeah. really funny actually because like <laughs> yeah. the, the monarch just transitions into a family business, um, but like uh, like Monaco. Monaco, you can just uh, well, I don't know, I'm sure there's like caveats to what I'm about to say, but like Monaco and probably some other places in the world where you can go there, and if you just have enough money, you can essentially just buy citizen or like residency there, and they're a part of the EU. They're gonna have a low tax rate. You're gonna have your residency. You're gonna be pretty safe. Like they're kind of piggybacking off the security of NATO. But that's exactly what I was gonna say. <laughs> they, they exist because a big scary country is gonna come and kick your head in if you try to invade. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, just like the rest of Europe, they're freeloading off Germany. Zing. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> um, if you do anything, Daddy America is going to come over and step on you. Is going to come over and step on your face. Yeah, step on your neck specifically. Uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's interesting. I really like playing with the ideas. I just, you know, even as like a, a guy who's really into Bitcoin and stuff, like. Um, that gets caught up a lot in this anarcho-capitalism thing. I still just feel like I'm just not seeing it yet, and maybe it's just because my own ineptitude. Um, What's well, interesting? That you I'm open to having Bitcoin my mind actually, changed. because if you are to make if you were to make a bull case for Bitcoin, it's probably it's not going to be the entirety of that transition, 
between oh no, it's an important technology in the, ta- in the transition and, though. And anarcho capitalist sell heroin to twelve year olds and and then yeah, nice. sell them your organs. Paradise. But <laughs> and then sell them the, the cure to get off the heroin. Oh fuck yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> a Sigma grind set. <laughs> Follow up with the upsell. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that is an important component. If it does if it works as as it's yeah. described. So I think about it as like, okay, so say there is this future where you have like much, you have like the deterioration of non-voluntary states. So you still might have states. So like even say taxation is a good example. Like people in Monaco still pay tax. Like if I immigrate, if you and I immigrated, or not you, not I fucking have enough money. One day I want to immigrate to Monaco. <laughs> With those books run from hell bucks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, say like you were to immigrate to Monaco. Like you're going to still pay taxes. It's just that, like, in immigrating there, you're, like, at least according to the sovereign individual thesis, like, more and more are going to be able to like negotiate your taxation treaties, essentially. And even if you, you know, at that point, you're really like you're essentially purchasing protection services off like a, a person who owns like a patch of land, essentially, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. an institution that owns a patch of land. So, <clears throat> with that being said, like taxation isn't inherently evil, so so to say, as the or like having a, an institution with a monopoly over coercion in an area, as long as people are like saying, all right, I'm happy to be here and to pay you this money. The issue has been that like the social contract or whatever propaganda we've been fed says that if you were born here, you don't actually sign any contract. We're just going to regard you as an asset to milk for the rest of your life until you die. And we're going to take 30% of your income every year, even though you didn't sign any contract. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so having said that, like Bitcoin, the role that Bitcoin plays in that future where you have basically an increase in voluntary interactions between people, uh, the role that Bitcoin plays optimistically and bullishly is that it allows people to demonetize the state. So what's happening at the moment is that because, say like in Australia, when you get paid, right, before the money even hits your bank account, the tax has been taken out if you're like a salaried employee. Mm. So it's like it's like you're being robbed before you even get paid, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, and so like, but under Bitcoin, it's like, well, say like I moved to El Salvador and start living off my Bitcoin instead of like existing in Australia or whatever. What I'm essentially doing is I'm taking my money and my wealth out of the fiat economy and moving it over to like the parts of the world that are increasingly using Bitcoin. Um, and so it's a way of like essentially like a technology that essentially allows more and more people to exit the fiat monetary system, remove their wealth from that trap and stop getting robbed. <laughs> and then uh, slowly but surely like put increasing pressure on the nation states uh, financially. Mm. That's the role it plays. So it's, it's, it's a net like obviously if you don't have Bitcoin or something like Bitcoin, as, as Hayek said, until we figure out a way to take the money out of the hands of the government, we'll never have good money again through some sneaky and roundabout way. <laughs> like mm-hmm. until that day happens, which happened on the 3rd of January, 2009, uh, <laughs> <laughs> until that happens, like the, the, the individual people, families, communities 
can't say no to the government because the government has like a monopoly on not only the use of force and violence, but the issuance of currency and saying like in some places, like not in Australia, in Australia, you actually can use whatever currency you want to purchase things. It's just like people don't, they just use the Australian dollar. But like in certain countries, like it's literally illegal to use another uh, another currency. And <clears throat> that's not a technological decision. That's not a free market decision that people arrived at because they, they wanted to. That's enforced by threat of violence from the government. And so it's clearly the case that in order to get out of that, you need some sort of technological alternative, whether it's Bitcoin or whether it's something else. It's absolutely necessary that to head towards this like ANCAP future, you need some way of like removing that key technology. Why do you need to remove that key technology from the, the, the like hands of the state? Because it's what people don't understand. It's why I don't think that Australia and other places are actually capitalist. I think that like, what people don't realize is like we live in a largely socialist world because half of the economy, every interaction that anybody has, any business that you interact with, you're using a technology that is controlled and owned by the state. And it's specifically designed to allow the state to steal purchasing power off you by issuing more currency without your consent to fund whatever the fuck they want to do. So it's literally like, I literally describe fiat money as like, it's a theft-based technology. <laughs> like anybody who is using a fiat, a fiat currency, you're using a technology where anybody who's issuing more currency, whether that's the state or whether it's the banking system, is taking purchasing power away from you without your consent. And so it's clearly the case that if you if you want to not live in a, like a situation where other people that you don't know and don't consent to are stealing your purchasing power, you need to use some other technology to do that. And Bitcoin's the only viable alternative. Mm -hmm. And you might still want to live in a democracy, but just because you want to live in democracy, does that mean that you should, that every, let's say Australia, should 25 million people use a technology that is broken? Like you don't even have to get like all ethical and up in arms about about the fiat money being degenerate or whatever. It's just broken. Like it's it's just a bad technology. Like if you just want to preserve your like you get paid in your fiat currency and you you don't want to do anything with it. You just want to leave it there and know that in a year you can still use it properly. Well you can't do that with fiat money because of the expansion of the monetary supply by the banking system and, and by by the government, right? Because of credit expansion and all that. Um, so like you don't even have to get ethical and political about it. It's actually just a broken technology. It's just a bad technology. Whereas if you want to get paid in something that you can then use later and there's no more of it in the world than when you got paid in the first place, then your only option is Bitcoin. It's just whilst we're living through the transition, whilst everybody figures that out and over the next like decade or two, as people realize that they're using a shitty technology that allows them other people to steal off them and they transition over to using Bitcoin, which is far superior technology, like... <clears throat> there's this like transition period where like essentially unless you go to El Salvador or whatever the next country is that adopts Bitcoin as legal tender, like in a lot of the world, you still can't use it yet as a currency. You can only use it as a store of value, a non-sovereign store of value. Hmm. I'm surprised there hasn't been more Bitcoin talk in this episode actually, given that, <laughs> that we're talking about and <laughs> Pakistan. And here's, here's my fucking problem with the, with the Austrian ec economists and especially the goddamn Mises Institute. I fucking, I love the Mises Institute, but man, they piss me off because they just haven't gotten around Bitcoin yet. It's like, it's, it's like, it's, this is the, the most ultimate capitalist 
free market private technology. It's like pure capitalism. It's a, it's it's a technological innovation on the monetary base layer of the economy chosen at will by free market participants. Everybody who signed up has signed up voluntarily. Everybody's mind is mining it voluntarily. Everybody who's using it, storing their wealth in it is doing it voluntarily. It's all free market driven. The p- current price of it is all driven by free market demand and supply. And yet, and yet the Austrian economists and the Mises Institute and the libertarians and the libertarian movement in the, the US are not just like fucking like jumping over backwards about the creation and adoption of this fucking thing. Like it's a goddamn miracle and yet these people aren't getting behind it. Uh, it's completely baffling to me. I just don't understand it. I think Rothbard would have fucking flipped out about it. I think <laughs> he would have I think he would have gone around. But I don't know. I'm putting fucking words in a dead man's mouth. How about I go over some of the other examples of ideological weapons wielded by the state that Rothbard gives? So Yeah, go on. One of these is tradition. And he says that the longer a state's ruled, the more potent this weapon is. And that ancestor worship easily transforms into worship of past state rulers. He also says that another way is to deprecate the individual and exalt the collectivity of society. And from this to say that any given rule implies majority acceptance. And as such, small pockets of resistance to the state will begin as an individual or a small number of individuals who don't like the state. And from there, that opposition can start spreading out as those people communicate their opposition to other people. And to stop these people from gaining any sort of support, the state ridicules any opinion that differs from that of the majority. So majoritarianism can be used by the state. And I imagine this is where some of Rothbard's criticisms of democracy come in. He also... And I found this a really interesting one, said that another ideological weapon is to make the state seem inevitable. And you can do this by talking about historiographical determinism as opposed to the freedom of will. So, for example, to, apply, to appeal to the laws of history or divine will, material productive forces, etc. Say that there are these enormous forces that insignificant individuals cannot hope to alter. And these things inevitably lead to not only the state, but the particular type of state that the government saying these things says um, says is the ideal. <laughs> Very convenient. Yeah, conveniently. Very convenient. Another way is to say that all humans are fundamentally violent and avaricious and past misdeeds on behalf of humans were because there wasn't enough state or not the right type of state controlling the brutality of humans. Which is incredible. Like, that's just ironic, right? It's like, you know, when I was working in the energy industry, right, I saw there's this, there's this, oh, I fucking hate, man. Oh, my God. Don't <laughs> even get me started on the energy industry. God, I've got to stop myself. <laughs> oh, my God. Overregulated in Australia. People <laughs> wonder why we're having energy, energy price issues. Uh, what, did, did you know that in Australia there's an actual profit cap of 6% for energy retailers? Really? Like they're literally not allowed to make more than six percent. It's like okay, so what does a business? What is the business supposed to do? The you only way you can make anything. you don't fucking invest in anything, and then the only way that you can actually grow the uh, the amount of like return on your investment is to increase the costs so that you're always within that. So you could go from a hundred million to two hundred million in 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 costs, so you can increase your like profit from six million to twelve million, right? So you got to up the costs. 
Mm. But the other, the other, so then the flip side of that is that only at scale can you actually like start getting reasonable returns on inv- like investment. So like, you know, like the largest energy retailers in the country, it completely destroys the ability of like a small retailer to enter the market competitively. Like it's complete. Uh, is it the retailers or is it the supply, suppliers? I can't remember. Yeah, sorry. Don't quote me on the details, but this is all in like the Australian, like Australian energy market regulations you can go and look it up yourself um and so <clears throat> why am i talking about that why the fuck am i talking about that sorry i just completely derailed myself <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah that's right the natural monopoly one of the justifications for like the structure of the australian energy market is fucking complete garbage <laughs> i hate it so much uh, is, is that they in the regulations they say they monopolize the uh, energy infrastructure because it's a natural monopoly so they say because the market tends towards a natural monopoly because it's like you know in order to supply a particular region like a neighborhood with like electricity it's going to naturally monopolize into a single supplier it's like okay so you're justifying imposing an what can only be thought of as like so a natural monopoly would be a free market monopoly so then is a state monopoly an unnatural monopoly like what are you talking about so what how do you use the possibility of there being a monopoly to justify a fucking monopoly like it's just completely yeah, absurd. That's a good and point. i don't even yeah, think it's- if it tends towards a natural <laughs> monopoly what does the regulation exist for and not only that i don't even believe them that that's the case because like in other parts of the world you have like uh distributed energy systems. What, what, you don't even need to look at other parts of the world you can just look at australia like you could be your own energy supplier and if you like uh like had a bunch of say like solar panels in a in a in a neighborhood why couldn't they like just form like an energy co-op or something within like a small area you know like especially with the amount of distributed like energy technologies there are these days like battery technology solar or like small generators like it's complete horse shit <laughs> or oh, maybe it's to do with like the actual laying down of like the electrical lines and stuff maybe uh i also am incredulous about that like why you couldn't have multiple providers of that infrastructure but whatever i mean just me just bitching and moaning more hey i just sorry just going back to what you said like about like there being uh like a uh a state like the inevitability of the state justify the the inevitability of there being violence justifies the the existence of an inherently violent institution monopolizing the violence. I just found it ironic. Mm. Another thing that he he proposes is inducing guilt. So I quote: "Another tried and true method for bending subjects to the state's will is inducing guilt." Any increase in private well-being can be attacked as unconscionable greed, materialism, or excessive affluence. Profit-making can be attacked as exploitation and usury. Mutually beneficial exchanges denounced as selfishness, and somehow with the conclusion always being drawn that more resources should be siphoned from the private to the public sector. So the implication here is that the an individual can participate in selfish greed, but state rulers are a generous or altruistic while the way that Rothbard frames it here is very very unflattering you do have a lot of people who are quite comfortable with taking money from private individuals or corporations so entities that generate wealth not just comfortable like people who like and then and then redistributing it because they have as what they're optimizing for 
things like, for example, the reduction of of discomfort or the alleviation of poverty, that sort of thing, and are, are happy for people who produce things to not see a portion of what they produce such that there is less poverty or some something bad like that in society. There's always some justification for the violation of other people's property rights. The thing is, like, the thing, the, I guess what I got to the realization was, is like, well, and this is, I guess, what I've been thinking through the last couple of months. Like, every now and then I just like send Jack on Discord, like, a message saying, fuck, I love property rights. <laughs> 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 how, fucking, how good is private property? There's always bright in my day. Just, <laughs> you, <laughs> as well. You, <laughs> it's just uh like i don't know how to put this very succinctly to me it always seems like arbitrary like why should we care about cause x versus cause y as a justification for violating people's property rights it's like and why why can't i just come up with my own justification to violate your property rights like say Jack says, like, well, I want to, I want Levi to pay this tax to pay for this health thing. Why can't I just say to, like, well, I want Jack to pay this much in tax to pay for this sports thing. But that's exactly what people are doing. People are like constantly throwing like this, like in Australia, and I'm sure it's the case in other democracies. Like people are just getting into political arguments with one another about how much they should violate other people's property rights, and then what those funds from the violated property rights should be used and spent on rather than just thinking like, what if we just stopped enabling the government to steal systematically from tens of millions of people? What if we just stopped doing that and we just let people do their own thing, you know? But may, maybe I'm just not being sophisticated in my thinking. So to that, could, could you say well, that's, that's assuming that maintaining property rights is more important than alleviating discomfort? Or so alleviating the issue that suffering. I have is that, is that um, it's not so much like, uh, how do I put this? Alleviating the, uh, say, whatever discomfort you say is like a health problem, like provide health services to people. That's great. I think, like, great. Lots of people agree with that. I don't know anybody who doesn't really like good health and stuff. That's not the issue. The issue is, <laughs> is like, in coercing somebody else, say, like, I coerce you to pay such and such a tax to pay for this health cause. Like, why does my value, valuing that health cause, uh, give me the right to violate your property? Like, if I value that health cause so much, why don't I just take my own money and spend it? Why am I spending somebody else's money? Mm. And then you just get into this, like, uh, this fight between, well, whose values? And that's why it becomes political. It's like, well, it's a matter of, like, whose values are more important? We have to have a fight over instead of people just taking responsibility for their own property and like dedicating their property towards the resources that they care about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you see this all the time. Anyways, I, this has been like way too, sorry, Levi's just ranting way too much. I apologize. Should we talk about how? <laughs> I mean, I did ask you a question. <laughs> sort of you're, you're responding to a question I specifically asked you. <laughs> you know, like, because the thing is, like, I, I agree that, like, for example, say, uh, here's really one that just because I've got family who are artists and stuff, um, like the arts. In Australia, a lot of the arts funding comes from the government. The thing is, like, it's not that people don't like the arts. People spend a lot of money on the arts. In fact, 
the video game industry is entirely art and it is a multi tens of billions of dollar a year industry with all these auxiliary industries like gaming olympics like well, gaming sports and uh and comic-con and all this sort of stuff like it's huge and it's art like anybody who looks at say like the elder scrolls or whatever doesn't think that's art is kidding themselves like it's obviously art but for some reason the fact that that was done through the free market and people paying voluntarily to participate and buy those games and so forth that's viewed as like okay well that's entertainment it's not really art but then this thing that i want to do is art but because nobody will pay me for it, I need to go and get the state to give me money. And that state got money by taxing somebody else. And my ability to do the art is more important than that person spending their own money on the form of art that they want to spend it on. Yeah, I'd, I'm not convinced that the state should fund the arts. Because oftentimes people who, who are getting state funding for the art are often making something that no one gives a shit about. And it's like, oh, but it's really deep and uh, you can't expect most people to get it. It's like, well, okay, don't ask most people to pay for it through their taxes. But it even applies like the Australian Symphony Orchestra or what it like. Maybe not. Wait, is it the Australian Symphony Orchestra? Is it? Yeah, but the thing with the like, thing with a lot of classical get, music like- is it's an art form that just has refused to update for <laughs> years and years and years. Fewer and fewer young people listen to it. The culture is so fucking elitist that yeah. <laughs> it's like it's just it's so unwelcoming to newcomers. And yeah, guess what? It's dying out. And it gets lots of state state funding. <laughs> yeah. Which I don't think it's true. Like it's uh yeah. I like and here's the thing, right? Like I consume lots of art. Like I've got a Spotify subscription. <laughs> so obviously I consume art. Consume shitloads of music. And it's not that I don't like consuming it. It's just like Okay, but um, or or video games or like any number of other types of art. Um, but then there's like a subsection of art. Okay, why am I using the art example? Well, <clears throat> the reason why I'm using the art example is because hopefully it's slightly less charged than say like health or something like that. But largely speaking, like with some kind of tweaks here and there, the same thinking applies. Like if you care about this type of health or this type of security or this type of art or whatever, then you pay for it. But then somebody comes along and mobilizes the political means to force somebody else to pay for that consumption. Mm, mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the state should be directing all of its arts resources to slam. To, we just need to, more to, slamming brutal death metal in the world. <laughs> that's, where, that's, that's where I think people should be coerced in spending their money. <laughs> I just want some of that fucking arts funding anyways. Like, we should just start applying for Victorian arts funding. <laughs> <laughs> this is just, an art project. <laughs> this is art. I want to yeah, get no, state funding <laughs> so that I can get paid by taxpayers for saying that the state shouldn't fund the arts. So can I bring up another interesting conversation? I don't know. Is this episode going on too long? We've managed to turn this very short book into an extremely long conversation. He talks about a lot of really important things. Like, eventually I will have dinner, but... <laughs> Yeah, me too. Another half hour or something. So, like, okay, so I have this. So, so again, I I should back up a little bit and say, like, okay, I'm not just like talking about my class interests here. (laughs) Talking about my house. Like, I grew up on welfare, right? And which I I don't know if I've mentioned that much on the podcast, but I've mentioned sort of like in my writing, which is online. Um, And, uh, and, you know, like 
I understand the desire that people want have to alleviate suffering in its many forms, both as somebody who like has donated my time or money to those sorts of things, but also as somebody who has been the recipient of it in the form of welfare when I was younger. And what I didn't realize when I was younger is that like, and like, I don't know about you, Jack, but like, I, I don't think you had welfare stuff when you were younger, but like, no. like nobody explained to me when I was a kid, like where the money came from. Like the money just came from Centrelink, the government. And it, it wasn't until re- like basically, so I look at my life, I know it's so fucking ridiculous. Like I'm such, must be such a weird fucking person like to the audience listening. But Jack's known me for years, so he's seen this like transition. But basically like I hit tech, right? I jumped jumped into into engineering, software engineering and, and tech. And I started learning about computers and all that stuff. And naturally like 2017, 2016 is when I got into tech. And so like, okay, well, I'm going to learn about Bitcoin. That seems to be like... The thing that's happening, right? So I started reading all this Bitcoin stuff, and essentially, like over the course of the last, like, say, five or six years, I basically, like, in order to understand Bitcoin, have had to understand economics. And in order to understand economics, you have to like think through these issues. And it's basically made me realize, like, oh, wait a second, my entire existence up until like whatever age in my doing uni was paid for by other people having their property rights violated. And it being siphoned through this coercive institution and given to me. And then also, additionally, as an Indigenous person, I'm being used as like a political punching bag by the political class in Australia, the fucking Labor and Liberals always like getting into shit show about like Aboriginal people, which is, I mean, very topical now, like mm. at this point of recording. And so like, but nobody ever just stopped to say like, hey, like... You know, the money that you're using to like pay for whatever you're paying for. At the end of the day, somebody else out there in the country like worked 2,000 hours this year. And then we went along and took three months of the, that year and pumped it into this institution. And you're getting like one little tiny piece of that institution. Like that wasn't explained to me. So I sort of freaked the last few years. I basically freaked out about that because I feel like, uh, how do I put this? I disagree with the sovereign individuals like analysis of the situation the sovereign individual basically said you can decompose society into two two parts the net tax payers and the net tax consumers and i disagree with that slightly i think that at the very least there's a tripartite issue in our civilization at the moment and it's a really bad issue uh because it's like not good for us morally but it's also not good for us from an economic point of view and that issue is that we have net tax payers who are out there being productive, who are then subject to the political and bureaucratic whims of like what Rothbard would call the parasites, like the, the state. <laughs> but then there's, there's actually a third constituency, which I think needs to be disin, dis, distinct, disentangled from these. It's people who are receiving those benefits from the state. So it's like if you say like uh, – Peter robs Paul to pay Pat, right? Those are actually three different functions. And as more and more people belong to that class of like, okay, we're recipients of like these benefits and without actually understanding where it comes from, which is the wealth generating part of the society, I think like it just perverts like our relationships between one another. 
especially as somebody who like I value being productive <laughs> and making stuff <laughs> and like going out there and working. And it's like, oh, okay, right. In order to learn all of these values as I was growing up, I had to like unlearn all the values that you get inculcated with if you grow up on welfare, which is like the values basically like you go down to Centrelink and you get your hand out every other Thursday. <laughs> and then you bitch and complain when the prices of everything goes up because the fucking currency is being debased by the government. It's like no wonder everything's all fucked up. It's interesting with that tripartite distinction because it becomes more complex because the people who are receiving money from the state and the people who work for the state, they're not always the same, but the overlap there is massive in that government employees. It's massive. The ones who are enforcing the state are also the ones who are paid by the state. I'm not sure if to be 100%, I'm sure you could find an edge case, but almost 100% of the people in the category of those enforcing the state are also in that third category you noted of people making money from the state. And and I honestly, like, I don't, you know, so, so take, like, I don't know what the solution to this problem is because you can always point out things like, what about people who are severely disabled, right? Like, if somebody is severely disabled and they literally can't provide for themselves and for the sake of argument say that, like, they're not dishonest or anything, like, they're just legitimately a person who, through no fault of their own, is, like, disabled to the point of not working that's a that's a tough problem okay what does a society what does a community what does a family do about that i don't know what the answer to that question is directly some people i think would say like family values or small community stuff interventions or like churches or non-for-profits there's a whole slew of potential answers one of the answers to that is that you have a giant enormous enormous bureaucratic state that deals with that person in a very like inhuman way through like a massive bureaucracy and through tons of paperwork in a in a systematic way that is very easily corrupted and and gamed and at the end of the day still gets its funding through coercive means <laughs> that to me seems like a much worse solution to the problem than leaving it to civil society small communities and families to deal with mm, mm. like i guess nobody's disagreeing i i don't think at least I'm not, and the the other libertarian people that I've seen talking about are disagreeing that there's these social ills, health or whatever, that need to be dealt with. But the the issue is just like, yeah, but if we do it through this way of solving the problem, there's a, there's a whole bunch of other issues that come along with it. All right. How about the section, how the state transcends its limits? This was interesting, but you can boil it down to effectively, he says, a state is ultimately the only entity powerful enough to regulate a state's behaviour. And so you, you leave a state to regulate its own behaviour. And throughout history, there have been different attempts to, to institute systems to make states have their power checked. So one of them is, for example, the US Constitution, which sets limits on government power to be interpreted by, and he puts in quotation marks, independent judiciary and basically he he makes the point that ultimately a state a state's interest is going to be escaping these various restrictions on its power and especially if the state is the body responsible for regulating the state's power while a state is not a homogenous institution it might be made up of different subcategories which check and balance each other's power eventually it is going to start overriding 
those checks on its own power that it is meant to be enforcing through through a judiciary, for example, which is still part of the state. Do you have anything specific to mention on on this part of the book? Um, I thought it was interesting. Like a lot of it was just American constitutional stuff, mm, mm. which I kind of found interesting, but I don't know what to say about it. <laughs> it's just, it, I guess it it seems like uh, these these institutions are always going to be manned by people who want to like expand their powers individually or on behalf of yeah. like whatever group they represent. And so unless you've got some sort of like mechanisms to wind those things back, yeah, you're going to run into issues. And, you know, like arguably the point of having democracies is that we can go through that error correction and like wind back powers and that sort of stuff. I mean, as we've noted many times on the show before and as, you know, Yarvin and Violinus and all this stuff talk about, like that seems to be broken at the moment. Like these things seem mm. to be like not error correcting away from centralized power, but um, at least no, in principle, ratcheting be able to. Yeah, they seem to be ratcheting towards and it seems to be a really big problem. It seems to be a big enough problem that like it just keeps on coming up on the show. Is or is that just a consequence of you and me, Jack? Just <laughs> I'm sure it's both. <laughs> like is it actually a problem? Well, I th- I think it's definitely a problem that you're getting a continuous ratchet of the size and the invasiveness of the state. Yeah, and I don't even think like I, I, I don't see it as like even the two poli- major political parties in Australia, I don't see it as like offering an alternative to this. Like, well, they're both political parties. It's both in their interest to expand the size of the apparatus that they wish to take control of. I, I don't trust any of them at all. <laughs> Jack and I are just like so t- <laughs> yeah, Free thinkers, man. <laughs> free thinkers. <laughs> Hey, hey, Jack, hey, Jack, hey, Jack. The greatest danger to the state is independent intellectual criticism. Is Murray Rothbard. <laughs> and he's dead and the state's still alive. So I'm throwing my weight behind the state. <laughs> Only back winners. <laughs> no, my, my, so, say, for example, like in Australia, we've got the Liberals and, and Labourers, the two major parties, like neither of whom are like about small governments. And I would have thought like, oh, Liberal, like, you know, maybe they talk about like reducing taxes and stuff, but like, has anybody actually like legitimately said, put on the table, like, we're getting rid of GST? Like, what kind of horse, like, and that was introduced by like God King Emperor himself, John Howard, as like, oh yeah, I'm awesome. Fucking like, yeah, but as if like a 10% tax on every single transaction in the economy is a liberal thing to do. Like, it sounds like profoundly illiberal to me. Uh, what the fuck are you trying to do? Just like disincentivize all consumption. Um, well, I think so you've, you've I, run like, into the problem that political parties can call themselves whatever they want. They could call themselves yeah. the I will fix everything forever party, but unfortunately <laughs> that actually need- doesn't say much about their policy platform. We need an honest party in Australia that's run by Jack and Levi and it's just, it's just crypto nukes. <laughs> it's just crypto nukes crypto- and I will crypto use nukes. as much tax revenue as possible to upgrade my PC. And I'm going to deregulate the shit out of the Australian energy market. <laughs> no, it's it's it's. I just find it disheartening because at least I don't feel represented at all in the Australian political domain. So you know, it is what it is. Maybe in other parts of the world, I would. Okay, what what the state fears is another section. So a state most fears its own death, and he says this can come about either through conquest by another state, which is war, 
or overthrow by its own subjects, which is revolution. And so to prevent war or revolution from killing a state, the state identifies itself with its citizens using propaganda and spreading ideologies, which we talked about before. He offered some examples of these ideologies that states use to to legitimise their own rule. In doing so, it actually convinces subjects to fight for the state as if they were fighting for themselves. And it is interesting talking about this. I do think the the distinction between state and citizen is more blurry than Rothbard makes it out to be. I don't think the two are completely separate in that the existence of an administrative apparatus under whose rule a person lives will have no impact on who that person is. Mm-hmm. I think it, it mm. definitely has an impact. At the same time, I don't mm. agree with the... I'm not sure it's really said out loud much because saying it out loud invites discussion, but at least the tacit, the tacit statement by political parties in Australia that the Australian government and Australia are the same thing, I also don't think that they're the same. It's it's between the two points of Rothbard and and the state. Closer to Rothbard, if you go by my gut feeling. <laughs> yeah, I. Sorry, you're talking about how the states relate to one another. Oh, the, yeah, we can go on to that section. So that's the next. Sorry, or, or the next what section. The state fears. Sorry, I just got lost there for a second. Yeah. Yeah, that was a short section as well. Um, death of the state is either by war or revolution. Yeah. Um, I don't have a huge amount to say about that, sorry. <laughs> yeah, and I don't have a great deal to say about the next part, how states relate to one another. So he says the natural tendency of a state is to expand its power, and I, I just completely agree with that. <laughs> yeah, and so because land is a zero-sum game, essentially, I mean, like, in principle, we can do, like, dredging and stuff, and it does happen a little bit in, like, UAE and stuff. <laughs> but, you know, for the most part, it's pretty expensive. It's not really going to happen. Until we really get advanced terraforming technology, we essentially have, like, the amount of land that we've got and that's it. And that's that's it. So it's a zero-sum game. And if what one if we, state What expands, if we geoengineered a new ice age so that we got more <laughs> and land? And just froze the planet could so be, that we... That could be a good That would be really efficient this. because... Only 30% of the surface of the planet is land. So we would be able to essentially like triple essentially the amount of land that we have. What if we start sucking up water from the seas and shooting it into space? And eventually, that's a fucking good idea. That's a really good idea (laughs) because eventually, if we have no water left on Earth, we could inhabit all of the land. I think we should do that. (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good idea. Yeah, I think I'm not so Rothbard didn't bring it up, but I there we go. I'm pretty sure he'd agree with that. <laughs> that, that, that would it's somehow technology solve, solve the problem of the state. <laughs> if we just get rid of all the water on the planet. Yeah. See, this yeah, is what I, we mean by there not being any like reasonable political alternatives. When was the last time that you heard somebody advocating just getting rid of all the water? There's too much the water. There's too there's about there's about three times as much water as we actually need. Well, we need at least like the less water there is, the more land there is, and everyone likes land. And and then couldn't we start just like uh, creating like underground terraces as well, like deep down into the crust of the earth? Then we'd also you like effectively increase the surface surface area. <laughs> <laughs> I think the only constraint on human water. flourishing is the existence of water in near proximity to us. 
<laughs> if it weren't for that, that's what's holding us back. <laughs> There's yeah, just too much water the around. Presence of water on Earth. <laughs> if it weren't for that, we'd already be amongst the stars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be so good. <laughs> yeah. So basically, uh, then states have to seize unoccupied land, and they have to expel the existing state, and so then you just get like wars, right? And you have yeah. a destructive impact on private citizens and capital. Yeah. Yeah. The final section is really interesting. History is a race between state power and local power. Social power. And, oh, it's social power. So he, it's not the same thing as, as what was said in The Sovereign Individual, not completely, but I think there are a lot of parallels between those two books where he says that the history of mankind is a contest between peaceful cooperation, which he calls social power, and predatory exploitation, so state power. So that, that distinction we talked about an hour ago or however long ago it was. Yeah. And in this struggle, the state always makes sure to seize certain, he calls them command posts, in its struggle with social power, such as the monopoly and violence, monopoly of ultimate judicial power, communications, so roads, the post office, air routes, education. Mm. He doesn't he doesn't bring up technology here, but it just seems like technology is this huge lurking present in the background of this argument. Because what, mm. what enables social power to, to resist the state? Multifactorial, but a huge factor in that, and one that is only growing in importance, yeah. is technology. So what sort of technologies are available? Are they ones that make it mm. easy to project force, in which case state power is probably going to start overpowering social power? Or are these yeah. defensive technologies, so things that allow people to communicate with each other, to trade with each other, to defend themselves. Mm. And these things tend to favour social power. Yeah. So a, a big assumption here is that with social power, that is, that's an innately peaceful or at least predominantly peaceful relationship. And that, that might be something he, explore, he explores in other works, but that's kind of just as assumed here. Yeah. I... Hmm. Do I agree with this? I don't know. I don't know. I, don't, I, I guess I, I see what he's saying. I, I, yeah. Hmm. The, the question of are humans fundamentally good is not something that I feel like I can answer. So I don't know if you say it. Say, hmm, what's a good example? Um, say, uh, I can't think of any examples right now, but mm -hmm. maybe it's, a, uh, it's an issue of, the values of non-coercion and cooperation through free exchange, you can kind of, except for the basic principle of respecting property rights, essentially like you actually don't really need to take a point of view about whether or not people are good because like if two people exchange mm. um, consensually where each person is giving up something that the other person wants and they're not forcing one another, then under those circumstances, it doesn't really matter what the thing is as long as they're consenting. I don't have to like what they're doing, but if it doesn't involve me, then it's irrelevant whether or not I think like, say maybe it's like the consumption of like, I don't know, like foot fetish porn. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> but maybe, you know, like Joe Blow likes it and is willing to pay for it off, you know, Tina, whatever, porn star on OnlyFans. Like I... I I'm not going to, like, do it myself, but if that person wants to do it, 
fine. And I don't, maybe I can judge them morally that I don't like them, but uh, I don't have to involve myself in that. Um, and then, but all I expect in return is that, you know, if I engage in some sort of exchange consensually with somebody else, that they don't come over here and mess with me. And so it's, it's, it's quite an abstract value. Mm-hmm. It's like this, mm-hmm. it's like this. I always think the, the framework that I use in my head is that there's like values and then there's like meta values and meta, there's certain, there's a, there's a few meta values that are like conducive of like allowing people who adopt this kind of meta value to be able to live together and each have their own more like lower level concrete values that they might want to like materialize in their own life but they don't necessarily have to have an expectation that other people share those values so a good example would be like freedom i think the two basic ones are like freedom and property rights and so like if you and i respect one another's freedom consent and property rights we can have like largely like disjoint value sets in everything else I could be a lazy slob. You could be like hyperproductive. I could be like a sexual deviant. You could be like a moral Puritan, right? But mm, mm. as long as we both adhere to this more abstract meta value and to the degree that we can like keep ourselves separate without incurring, in, without any incursions on our on each other's property rights, say like living in separate communities or whatever, then we can actually like coexist and to the degree that we have something that we want to exchange, we could potentially even exchange with one another and not care about all those other values. So it's actually quite an abstract, that's why I call them meta values, freedom, property rights, that sort of stuff, freedom of association. They're like really abstract and they allow like people to coexist with other more concrete values that they might want to exhibit in their own lives but aren't imposing on others. To what extent is that desire for coexistence though a byproduct of us growing up in liberal societies because I can think of plenty of of worldviews that would say, no, I don't want to coexist. I want to either convert or or dispose of people who don't agree. Yeah. And so and that that would be actually an area where I think like the Papirian approach or whatever the democracy approach is like arguably like has something to bear against the libertarian approach, which is to say that like, okay, but um, say you've got, uh, say some militant religious sect wants to impose their theological or theocratic regime on like the rest of society or like another territory. Like there's going to be times where like that peaceful coexistence isn't uh, reasonable or isn't, isn't realistic Mm, and mm. so the open what i'd call the open society what the the values that i just expressed are the values of the open society essentially and Mm -hmm. the details of whether you do that through democracy or whether you do it through some sort of like consensual contract based whatever like anarcho libertarian fucking nonsense like whatever you however you want to implement it that those basic things that i just said are like the open society so the open society can't exist if it doesn't have teeth mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yep yep and so like it needs to defend itself and it's all like it's for thousands of years when it wasn't able to defend itself like the greeks against the spartans like it was destroyed and in baghdad there was a period of time where the open society started to come come about and it was crushed and then there was a period of time like uh 
during like uh, Venice, where the open society started to proliferate, and then it got crushed. And so this is the one time in history where like the open society seems to have not gotten crushed. <laughs> and then does it does it require a state? That's the question. Wow. And that's Jack, a really hard question. That's the question. That's the question, I think. You know, like you talk about there being one of the big questions of the 21st century being the question of technology. I think that might be the other big question. I'm, I'm not going to be able to answer that question in, <laughs> in this podcast episode. Do you have much more to say about this, this book? No, not really. So I would recommend this one. It's really short. And while it's, it's more polemical than a really, really disciplined and, and rigorous work, although it is, it is very clear and it is argued, it's not just pure polemicism, it's probably the best layout in so, so short a text of anarcho-capitalist thought that I've come across. He writes nicely. It's free. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely worth a read. Yeah, you can get it for free on the Mises Institute website. Yeah, Mises Institute publishes it. Like, you have to buy the printed edition, of course, to reimburse them, but <laughs> not the PDF. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's thought-provoking because it, it definitely, like, challenged my thinking. Like, Rothbard and Hopper and stuff challenged my thinking with regards to the role of democracy. I'm still undecided on the issue, and there's still a lot of value conflicts that I haven't sorted out in my head. Thought-provoking. Yeah. Worth a read. Look, listen, De- definitely if you, if you listen to us talk for the last two and a half hours or whatever, like... And you've still you found could it have you could have read this. You in could this have read time. the book. <laughs> Next week is something quite different. We're going to be going through the decline of the West, Volume One, by Oswald Spengler, and we're going to split it up into multiple episodes because it's an absolute behemoth of a book, and there's no way we could we could read the whole thing while maintaining a weekly upload schedule, and then do it remotely justice in a single episode. <laughs> no, so, not at all. We're going to be splitting it up. It's like it's it's not too much of a spoiler, really, for me to say. It it's a lot of fun. I'm not <laughs> convinced by a lot of it, but it's it's just such a blast to read. It's extremely different to Anatomy of the State. <laughs> <laughs> it's so different. <laughs> yeah, but I had a lot of fun reading this book this week, um, and yeah. This was this was nice. I, uh, we shouldn't. We definitely shouldn't just read books that we agree with too often, though. I think. <laughs> no, no. Well, this was an interesting one to read because it's very much for me. It's like a the heart says yes and the head says eh, maybe. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting one for for me, like reading the libertarian stuff because my thinking was profoundly not libertarian when I was younger. So yeah, well, mine too. <laughs> Anyways, anyway, um, thanks for thank listening. you for listening. Almost three hours. <laughs> well done. <laughs> See you next time. <laughs>